Hi, this is Akshay. And this is Salar. And, and this, this is, is the Missing Pages, Pages podcast. In this podcast, we will talk about nutrition, plant medicines, biohacking, and meditation. Yeah. People on the 14th floor, they know what floor, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. There's a good joke from the late Mitch Hedberg where he says, if you live on the 14th floor and you jump off, you will die earlier. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> Gallows humor from the paramedic. Yeah. <laughs> so we got Jake, Michelle in the house. Uh, who is Jake? Jake, um, I started studying his life and uh, his podcast and everything and his biography for about like two weeks. And I've been going on a roller coaster <laughs> like yeah, every yeah. single day. And like my job is finished going back the next day. I'm like, holy crap. In his podcast, he has so much of this stuff to just share and yeah, like it, yeah. and all the podcasts that he has it goes into details and tells you like specifics which we all need we need that instruction from somebody who's been through these things and uh it's totally a bliss to have someone like him who is doing what he's doing uh his name of uh his podcast name is flight of thoughts flight mm-hmm. of thoughts and uh check it out <laughs> the name actually comes from uh, yeah. with my depression one of my symptoms is i can go into flights of thoughts and a yeah. lot of people with depression, they ruminate, right? Yeah. So those thoughts kind of come through in flights. Yeah. Oh. So it's also the way we talk with a lot of guests. <laughs> I was going to ask you what that yeah, what meant. was the reason. Yeah. Also with my yeah. with mental health teaching, right? Yeah. There's a lot of different um, conditions, mental health conditions that feature flight of thoughts. So yeah. I feel a lot of people can relate to that symptom when they're stressed. So, yeah. So tell us about yourself. What um, From the very beginning where you decided to become a paramedic. Like even like before school, maybe like what was what was your motives? Like why? Yeah, it was actually really strange. I was in um, high school and in grade eleven bio class, and remembering that like I like school, I'm good in school, but I don't want to go to university right away. I don't think I know what I will do there. Um, stimulating. So my teacher came up to me and dropped a paramedic program pamphlet on my desk and said, "You know, when we talk about human body and stuff, you seem like you're really engaged in it and like you have a lot of energy." maybe you should try this out or look into this. So I did a career testing we do in high school. And like, that was one of the jobs that came up there. Like it's like third or fourth was like paramedic or nurse. And I was like, Oh, cool. So I looked into it and it seemed really stimulating. I tried out for some places. Um, age really matters to them a lot, like Humber college and such. They will take in 18 year olds, but a lot of the time they prefer some life experience. So I took, went to one school that was really good about uh, interviewing you and taking for marks. It was a great class. Um, did well. I struggled as a student, though, and I'll admit that. Young paramedics really struggle um, with grasping concepts when they don't have a lot of life experience. That's why a lot of services will try and wait till someone turns 25, maybe, or around those ages before they're happy to take you right in. Yeah. Um, but I was lucky that my mentor, when I was a student... Oh boy, he's one of the, he's known as one of the better paramedics in Toronto, and I was even told by my teacher before, hey Jake, you don't fuck this up. This guy's one of the better ones. Now we don't want to lose him. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. Um, and I remember walking in, I felt like I could feel his experience emanating off in the parking lot, and he just looks at me, and he's like, you're 19? I was like, yeah. He's like, okay, you have a lot to prove. <laughs> And it was great. Three months of like lots of stress, but he was great at guiding me. And um, he picked up on my depression before I did. And he did a great job on kind of like tapping into that and helping me still thrive. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I got into it. Wow. What a story. (laughs) The quick thing to say too is my teacher who knew I was 18 um, and my other classmate, 18 at the time, 
we didn't have life experience because we're out of high school. So she said, Jake, maybe you should do something called body removal. It's like, oh, what's that? And she's like, well, it's where you go and remove bodies where people have died and take them to the morgue. Um, and if you can't handle a dead body, you should not be a paramedic. And I was like, that's a good point. So <laughs> I met this beautiful old couple, um, and I'll say their first names, named uh, Gordon Claudette. They're a beautiful old couple. And they run it privately up north. <laughs> and they walked in. It was like grandparents welcome. Like There's like the doilies on the couch and everything. And um, they're welcoming me in. And I right, oh, son, have a seat. And we can't give you money for this because you're not old enough to be insured. But we'll pair you up with some of our workers. And when we get a really good call, like a really bad like suicide or homicide, we'll call you in. Like, okay, Gordon. It's like, all right, son, you want any cookies? <laughs> but anyways, that's how I really felt like comfortable. Is like I was guided through my first time seeing a dead body. Um, they brought me into the morgue and showed me the different people with their like faces peeled down for being stitched back up and making. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> and it just made me comfortable. And like my parents never shielded me a lot from things growing up. So. Yeah. So how many dead bodies has been seen? Oh boy. <laughs> Legally, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, um, um, definitely. Uh, it's one of those things you don't keep track of per se, because there's times where you'll be in the hospital and you'll see somebody brought in who's having CPR done on them, or where they just pronounce somebody dead. So, yeah. God, when it comes to that, I could have been around plenty over the four years I worked in Halifax. But the ones of like people that I've had to do CPR on, um, pronouncing dead, things like that. Um, over four years there, maybe like holy shit, that's like, like ten that's or twenty. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing people mistake yeah. in paramedicine is that every call is life threatening. No, like sixty percent of our calls are social work, mental health, uh, long term chronic illnesses. Like you have a foot infection and you can't get to the hospital because you don't drive and your legs don't work. So we have to take you and maybe you are sick, but uh, you're doing fine. <laughs> that's most paramedic calls. They're like, oh, it's chest pain, but not a heart attack. And but it's those forty percent. Um, where they kind of, for some paramedics, and I'm lucky that I'm still really young in the field, but a lot of people who've been in the job a long time, those 40% of calls that are life-threatening and just come through out of nowhere, Mm -hmm. that's what shakes people's nervous systems. Um, Unless they're wired to just enjoy that, which most, I think, first responders are. But the thing is, you don't choose when they come. There's times I'll go through months when I was working out there where we get no serious calls and your brain kind of relaxes. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you'll go through a month where there's a lot of people who are sick and dying. Um, yeah. So I think yeah. that's something you hear a lot with nurses too. Like, so what are the things that you do during the day to keep yourself like calm? Like do you meditate? Do you like do any of that stuff? Because it's, this is a really mm-hmm. tense job. Like par- yeah. being paramedic, being police officer, all these like primal yeah. ones yeah. is like crazy. So what are your practices that you do? One of the things is exercise is for, I think, anybody for stress hormone release, right? They yeah. say, like, sweating, crying, and uh, peeing are the best ways to release stress hormones. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. if you're listening, I'm not advocating you run down your local street um, crying and wetting your pants and sweating. It's not the best way, but doing those things separately are great. Um, so, if you're feeling stressed out, like, running for 30 minutes until you're sweating like crazy is one of the better ways I find can burn off stress. Social connection. Like if do not, even if you're having symptoms of stress and you're feeling kind of irritated, don't isolate yourself. A lot of people do that. Um, I have wonderful friends and family that support me. So I've never felt kind of on my own, so to speak. So that's been huge. Um, the other thing is meditation. I'm starting to learn more and more about, and sometimes it's a good counselor that'll teach you that. Like for me, my, I wasn't seeing a psychologist to help me with depression. It was a counselor who taught me how to meditate. (laughs) So there's those and music. Huge. Comedy and music, 
they're the best things. I can't not love them, even if I'm super depressed. It can pull me into a good state. Oh, there yeah. you go. And a bit of <laughs> cannabis, I won't lie. That's one of the things I advocate. Um, I'm a peer support worker at Boots on the Ground, which is a crisis support line for first responders. And I try to advocate for medical cannabis use to help people learn to use it properly um, so people aren't going into it blind. Because like you guys, what we were saying earlier, there's not a lot of education direct in these fields. No, there's yeah. not. And that's, uh, that's an unfortunate. The more people that come out and they talk about this, it's actually better for the harm reduction in society in general. Yeah. Um, so what is, um, I listened to a couple of your episodes um, in your podcast and it was, as I said, it was like a train ride. It was crazy. You talked about ADHD. You talked about Ibogen, um, like the free online uh, Naxlone training. These are like the things that really like pop up in my head. And, and the, the idea that like there's a supervised um, places in Toronto for injection and all that stuff. And like listen to all of these and I was like, I want to finish this, but there's never enough time. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I like that with yours as well. I'm still trying to catch up. Yeah, um, no. Although there's, there's uh, you're, you're kind of leading this nice, beautiful book that you're kind of creating. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's unfolding nicely. So yeah. <laughs> it's getting there. Slowly you're building every page <laughs> yeah. carefully. The thing, I'm glad you appreciate the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so about um, cannabis, how do people go about cannabis? Like, wh- what is the mentality for someone like who's never done it? Who, um, like, the fears, the positive, the negatives, like all everything about it. Yeah, and we have to know there are there are negatives potentially for anybody using anything that's not just. I don't even know what word to use. Like even caffeine, there are some people who respond differently to it yeah. compared to others. Mm-hmm. Um, but I find with cannabis, the first step is know why you're using it. So if you're using it recreationally, that's an easy one. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, I just want to let loose with some friends. Okay, well, even then, like, if you're using it recreationally, like, is it to relax or to be social? Because I hate, the one thing I don't like is when I tell people that I educate with cannabis, some of them say, well, I tried it and I just fell asleep. It's like, okay, well, do you know what strain you tried? Well, they're all the same. Well, they're not really. <laughs> like, yeah. Okay, yeah, this yeah. conversation can't go much further than this because we're not even like close to the same page. Um, but the education you see, and I noticed your trip project um, cards under the table, um, they're wonderful to have is to know that you need to know why. So I was lucky enough to have a doctor. And in Nova Scotia, they were very ahead of this where they gave paramedic cannabis cards very early. and um, I'd say probably two years before legalization hit. Mm-hmm. And the education aspect was huge. Like, if you're going to be using it for post-traumatic stress disorder, you shouldn't be using it to escape your trauma. You should be using it to be able to work through the symptoms. So it's like psychedelics. You don't take mushrooms to hide from pain. Mm-hmm. You take the mushrooms to work through it or to have that pain come up. So panic attacks from cannabis, they come from the times where maybe people don't know that they're escaping something. And I've had a lot of friends tell me that they would be abusing cannabis when they realized they were using it to escape. So if you're sitting around and using weed to not study because it's too stressful to study, so I'm just going to smoke weed and watch Netflix, <laughs> or I'm, you know, I'm going to call in sick today because you know, I'm depressed and I can just smoke weed and feel better at home, that's where we get into negative stereotypes and patterns. So the goal is like, are you going to use it to get up and go to the gym though? Because that's the idea. Like You have this new open state of mind when you're under the influence of THC and these different terpenes, you should use that state. And it's like, if you're on LSD, you shouldn't go to like some chaotic horrible area that's traumatizing where there's like a stabbing happening down the street and some baby screaming your brain's not going to respond well yeah Yeah. so like that would be one the main step is know why second is know your body that not everyone does respond well my mom classically even with cbd 
I, I laugh. Like, you always hear the odd person, they say, like, CBD makes me high. Well, my mom just doesn't, she just gets super tired. And she doesn't like the feeling. Oh, that's so strange. Because for me, like, I can take, like, 20 milligrams of CBD and barely feel it. Um, same with THC. Some people take a bit of an edible, and they have a horrific hellish trip. It's like, well, you took 10 milligrams, and you're having a bad trip? Well, I can take sometimes up to 100 and not really feel it. Yeah, that's why they say you need to, like, start from, like, microdosing. Like, very, very small, minimal amount, and, like, start, like, knowing your body. And at the end of the day, these are all, like, substances like, um, like caffeine, sugar, and all that. And we, in, like, caffeine is, like, because when, maybe, like, the first time you take it, you kind of, like, get to know of, like, what it does to your to your brain, what it does to your body and all that. And you're still like, oh, okay, so this is, a, like, it fresh me up. Not fresh me up, but, like, it wake up my brain. Mm-hmm. Um, these are, like, the same thing. If you if you use a macro, I feel like people are, that's where all the damage come from. But, like, when the macro level comes in, it's uh, it's actually... If you know what you're doing, you can use use it to art to improve do your something. life. Yeah, do something yeah, yeah. Um, that improves your yeah. actual life, and that's that's a whole goal of uh, of this whole movement. Well, yeah. some of the steps that I'd say to people too to avoid that cycle of not using it to enhance your life is don't make it like it's something that as soon as you come home you just do, like oh, anything yeah. almost, right? Like yeah, unless it's like eating food or something that's gonna help yeah. your body right away, but. Unless, like, that's you using it to medicate through something that's really difficult and that's why you're using it. Um, but with caffeine, like we were saying, some people can drink coffee and they feel panicked. Some people can go to bed after a cup of coffee. Mm. So that's good that you bring up. You should know your system. Um, so it's on trying to start low and go slow. Mm. Start with, like, the least invasive thing. I think if you've never tried cannabis, start with maybe some drops under the tongue of oil, if that's the method you like, um, or mm. vaporizing. Uh, don't just yeah. smoke a fat joint and the media right like all the people yeah. who are in the media who smoke a bunch of pot like you Snoop Dogg and like stuff like that and Cheech and Chong it's always this mass amount you know in <laughs> Cypress Hill it's like they like the mass yeah. amounts of weed yeah. and it's fine there's nothing wrong with that but it's it's the idea that you think oh that's just the way it is then if you smoke no, weed you just gotta smoke fat joints tolerance there. yeah like they have a high tolerance yeah. um, so I think don't aim to be like too pop culturally about it when you're starting out try to like be respectful, right? Yeah, yeah, respectful to every single plant and the space and people around you and all that. Like there's a, it's basically a culture that needs to like slowly build up with this and where people learn that like, oh, this is this is all about respect. This is all about love. This is all about building up the society better than um, what it is now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, how are the laws on psychedelics? So yeah, we're getting yeah. strange places now. Yeah, right? Right? So <laughs> in the states, no, honestly, like in the states, they have decriminalized um, yeah. psilocybin and psychedelic entheogenic plants in some areas. Yeah. Um, I know we're on a fast track here with MDMA and psilocybin, specifically MDMA in twenty twenty one. If the FDA has just made that the breakthrough therapy, yeah. there's not really can't put that back in Pandora's box, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm very confident that in twenty twenty one it will be a regulated practice. They're already trying to train people for it. Um, I've just been finally designated as a social service worker by the college, so I'm hoping that I can spend the next couple of years building practice hours to be able to apply for psychotherapy. So, like, we need more people to want to do this. And there's so yeah. many people in the field that I know that they work with, with really severe mental health problems and addictions that some of these have proven to work for. So maybe you should be looking at the research and comparing it. I'm not saying it's going to be something that works for everybody. But if you're someone who works with severe addictions, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, um, end-of-life care, 
read some of these articles and compare it to the interventions you have. I was able to do research appraisal as a paramedic um, in Nova Scotia where I'd read studies on like emergency interventions and compare them and see whether the study was relevant or not and if we should change what we're doing. I think more healthcare workers, whether you're a doctor, nurse, um, hospice care, wherever you're working, do the research. Because if you educate yourself, um, the reason I got so passionate was because I really started to read the research and talk to the people who got the results. Yeah, and one of the most interesting um, um, things that happened in the past couple of months is well, I, I went to Dream Festival and I saw they have like these booths and uh, in the in the festival that they teach about drugs and they simply like come to you and like okay what are what are you taking today like really straight up saying hey like mm-hmm. let let us help you uh, through all um, this whole thing so it doesn't become a trauma traumatic experience for you. So what, what it shows for me as, as like, you know, as a citizen or someone like who is just passing through and like seeing some witnessing this is basically the government is following along with the, with the idea they are trying to help, but it's all about like, if we are ready to receive that help. Yeah. Yeah. Being ready is a big one and doing it the right way. So like, I think it's great to start with medical regulation first with some of these and the way that they're decriminalizing, I think it's great. Um, that if you're caught using these substances, you're not put in jail at all, that maybe they take it away from you. <laughs> it's like the worst thing they'll do. But at, like you see at these festivals, um, some of them do have the harm reduction booths. Um, at Evolve, out east in the East Coast, that's where I first got in on the ground floor of harm reduction, where the paramedics in Nova Scotia all flock to Evolve to let loose a little bit and, and relax and, and actually sometimes explore psychedelics for their own traumas. But then we also take up the medical staff just by natural. Um, We volunteer as the medics there as well. Until recently, they now have an ambulance service on staff, which is great. But we have um, testing there. So people will test people's drugs for them to make sure they're not laced with anything dangerous. And the cool part about that, that's not just a case-by-case thing. Because if we find something laced with um, fentanyl, the whole place should know. Right? Mm -hmm. Because if someone's out there selling something laced with fentanyl... Yeah, and you want, say someone's looking for ketamine, and like we test someone's ketamine, it's top full of fentanyl. It's like people should know that's out there. We shouldn't be hiding that from the public because it's uncomfortable that people do drugs. Some of the harm reduction booths I've seen, though, at the ones in Toronto, they have these black boxes called harm reduction boxes and cops sitting behind them. Mm-hmm. And what they're for is for you to throw your drugs out before the cops search you. Mm. So that's not really conducive because no. what people are doing now is mass doses in line. Oh, I'm going to throw these out. I paid for this. They're going to take a mass dose and then get in there and overdose. (laughs) Or have not good effects. So I think with music festivals, that's where we see a lot of the results where in Evolve, when we started getting big in drug testing and having the paramedics involved in harm reduction, there was barely ever ambulances called. And before that, sometimes we'll call an ambulance for a panic attack because people aren't trained, right? They might just call because, oh, you're having chest pain. But if you have people who are trained to look at these things and know what's a true overdose... What's just someone having a bad trip? You should have like the medical tent next to a trip sitting tent, because trip sitting tents are starting to come up now a lot in music festivals, mm-hmm. where they have like the trip project or Zendo project, where they're there for you. So if the paramedics check you out and hey, you're stable, you're just having a difficult time. Let's bring you next door. Yeah. And you can sit with them for a while, and then if something comes up, they can send someone to us. Yeah. Ah. What is next on kit? Ah, naloxone. So my new job right now is I work at the uh, supervised injection site. In Toronto, um, I won't say anything about which one or anything just for conflict of interest and all that, but there's there's a lot now. <laughs> yeah. um, the one I work at is very busy, so we hand out naloxone kits, and what naloxone does is 
it reverses opioid overdoses where opioids lock into the brainstem, the medulla oblongata, and they shut off breathing. So in an overdose where someone's taken just too much for their tolerance, like we said with caffeine, same idea with tolerance, right? Snoop Dogg has a lot more tolerance. So with this, if you take too much or it's laced with something that's more potent than you thought, it's going to overwhelm the brainstem and then that will shut off breathing and lower heart rate and put the body into a depressant effect of the nervous system. So for those people, if they look like they're not alive, but their pulse is still beating usually. So when you run over to them and you're a lay responder, like the average person, you see someone turning blue and not breathing, people just start chest compressions on them and start breaking uh, the ribs and like their heart's beating under there, but like no one's trained to take pulse checks. They're hard to do if you're not trained. We don't teach them the first aid. So what we have now is naloxone or Narcan, they're both the same thing, where if you see someone that's turning blue, not breathing, and you think there's a chance that it's an opioid overdose, you just try to give them Narcan or naloxone, same thing, right? Try to give them that drug. And if it works and it pushes the opioids out of their brain receptor and they wake up breathing, awesome. Still call an ambulance because it only works for 10 minutes and then it can wear off and they can re-overdose. Yeah. Um, but if you try that first, it doesn't work in the first two minutes. Um, as we were saying, it comes with two per kit, two doses. In two minutes, if they don't begin breathing again, you give them a second dose up the nose. Um, if it's an injectable one, make sure it's in the outside of the shoulder, so the deltoid muscle, or in the outside of the thigh. Mm-hmm. Don't try to give it anywhere else because yeah. those are you want to hit the meat. Intermuscular <laughs> injections, right? Oh, okay. The cool thing with Narcan, people who are listening who are nurses and healthcare providers, what about checking for flash and if you're in a vein? Don't worry because Narcan can go anywhere. If you hit a vein by accident, it'll just work faster. <laughs> oh. So don't try though. Don't aim for a vein, but just go for those muscles. It's 90 degree. If you hold the needle 90 degree, put it straight through into the muscle and then push the plunger down. It's the entire dose. So it comes with two doses per kit. So if these are out there more and people know how to give them, you simply roll someone on their side, give them the injection or spray up the nose and then wait two minutes. Call an ambulance right away. If they don't respond, give the second dose. If they then don't respond to the second dose, then start chest compressions. Because after four minutes, the brain starts to have brain damage. Four to six minutes without breathing. So if the first two doses didn't work, we're now on that cusp of brain damage. You now need to start circulating the blood. So get those hands in the center of the chest and pump hard and fast until that ambulance arrives or firefighters. This is something like when I, when I heard the naloxone kits exist and I was like, okay, so anybody can really help the paramedics before, mm. um, before any emergency happens or like they can mm. save their friends' lives and all that. Yeah. And this yeah. needs to be like, that's, yeah. this is like the one, maybe one of the uh, many reasons that we all need to educate about these because these psychedelics are coming and eventually they're going to, be flowing into the into our society and we all have to like educate ourselves shouldn't like wait for somebody else to educate us or something and also remember that the opioid crisis it's at a mass right now we have the leading cause of death in north america is suicide and overdose and it's overdose with these opioids and it's not people who are um sometimes it is prescriptions that are killing people in their homes but the reason that people are dying so much in the street it's not it's not even just that it's fentanyl, believe it or not, because at the supervised injection sites, people sometimes know they're getting fentanyl. Like they need fentanyl because their tolerance is so high. Um, it's when the dose isn't regulated or if it's cut with a benzo, so anti-anxiety drugs, because Narcan won't work on that. So if you are hearing these mass um, situations like in Vancouver and in Toronto now where you're giving blasts of Narcan and the person still won't start breathing, and we've had overdoses at the site I work at where we're breathing for somebody for 20 to 30 minutes and given all a bunch of Narcan and nothing's changing. So we do call ambulances then, but you said a good thing. You can help the paramedics out. 
Because yeah. if you tell them, I've given two doses of Narcan before you came, it didn't work, well then paramedics can give way more Narcan or we might stabilize the person's airway. Because yeah. you may mm. tell us, hey, they've been down for four minutes not breathing. Well, we don't mm. want them to have brain damage. So. Yeah, it's, it's the same way that the paramedics help the doctors. Like they yeah. tell them like, hey, there's, uh, I experienced this, the mm. witness there experienced this, and like this whole history like goes to the doctor and the doctor like make better decision. So it's like, yeah. Step by step. Yeah. Um, how long you've been um, paramedic? How long you've been doing it? So um, with paramedic, I was doing it for four years in Halifax, and then I took a step out of the ambulance to go to school for addictions and mental health. And in this time, I've been teaching a lot of first aid, mental health first aid, and now working as a harm reduction worker as well. Yeah. Um, so I might get back into it at some point, but at this, I'm, what I'm seeing is um, where my skills are more necessary is in this role. Like you say, like um, I'm because I have my experience being a paramedic. When I'm at these sites. Um, I'm very effective with helping the nursing staff because they don't always know I'm a paramedic if we haven't worked together yet. And when there's an overdose, I spring in with an airway and start breathing for them. They're like, yeah. wait, how do you know this? Okay, good, you're here. <laughs> so when the ambulance shows up or police show up, I also have experience giving reports and like communicating the right things because sometimes there could be a lot of stigma. With, mm -hmm. like, even still with first responders and drug users and sex workers and stuff because we're not taught in school anything about addictions and mental health. So that's why the last two years I've been in addictions mm -hmm. mental health school. I got my diploma for that. I'm now a social service worker, and I'm trying to combine both roles now with the supervised injection job. That's super cool. Has anybody ever, in your experience, and like you hear everybody around you, got overdosed from cannabis? Oh God, no. <laughs> so here's the thing I'll say about that: is that yeah. THC greenouts, or when you overdose on cannabis? I mean. It technically will still be called an overdose because you've yeah. taken more than you wanted to dose, right? Yeah. So when you're drunk, you know, that's technically an alcohol overdose. Yeah. Technically, right? Because you're perturbed. And yeah. You're, yeah. So the idea is when people have a cannabis overdose, it's when the THC overwhelms the receptors and their blood pressure drops. It's not life-threatening usually at all. No one's ever died from this. It's just you, but we've all seen it, right? Someone takes yeah. an edible too much and they turn yeah. ghost white and they're, yeah. oh my God, Jimmy's dying. And they call an ambulance. And yeah. by the time we get there, they're usually fine. Or yeah. once we take their blood pressure and lie them down or sit them in this position that's better for their blood pressure even out, usually by then they're embarrassed. And I've had most times I've transported anyone to the hospital with a cannabis related emergency. It was never an emergency. It was just that... It was illegal at the time, so I didn't know what else was in it. Yeah. You know, I couldn't... Like, where'd you get this? Oh, some dealer. Well, then maybe you should come to the hospital because I don't know what the fuck's in it. <laughs> yeah, and that's like, true. And if I leave them there and they die later of a seizure because there was some other shit in it, then I lose my job. But now that it's regulated, all we have to ask is, where'd you get it? Oh, I know what it is. Okay, you're fine then. Stay home. Here's some Cheetos. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah, my favorite calls are those where someone's um, on the couch and they're freaking out and their friend doesn't know what to do. If someone's had too much cannabis, all you have to do is remind them, A, no one's died. That's a great one. No one's died. You're not going to be the first. Um, I've heard a comedian, I think it was Joe Rogan or someone was like, you're not that special. You're not going to be that first person. <laughs> and I don't like it. Yeah, but hey, and here's the thing though. If you, your friend passes out, roll them on their side, right? Yeah. Just in case. Because people can puke, right? And yeah. I don't want anyone choking on vomit. So if this happens, just calm their breathing. Four seconds in their nose. Four seconds out their mouth. Then get them up to five seconds in their nose. Five seconds out their mouth. If you can work them up to seven seconds, that shuts off the fight or flight response. Because back when that was instilled in our brain, it was when we had to run from predators. And try to go for a jog and breathe seven second breaths. You can't. So the brain knows that if I can sit here and take a seven second breath in 
and then seven seconds out, I'm not being attacked. And it doesn't stop it for sure. But if you can get the person to practice this breathing as much as possible, lie them down or sit them up in a position they're comfortable in, um, turn the lights down, ask them, what's the best thing I can do for you? How do I make you feel safe? Because it's safety. That's all they're concerned about usually. Whether it's a psychedelic or a little too much cannabis, and they're not going to die. You, If you have to call an ambulance, that's probably just because you're panicking and you haven't seen it before. If Don't be afraid to call if you're really concerned. We're not mm-hmm. afraid to come slap on a blood pressure cuff, check out their heart, and then leave them at home with a care plan. <laughs> mm-hmm. My favorite is just, what's your favorite pizza place? Do they have Netflix? You know, are you your favorite friend? <laughs> do you have someone you want to call? <laughs> I yeah. ask them things like, do you have any stress in your life? Because usually the time, there's something going on they're not dealing with. And if I can leave them with that to talk to their friend about, with a good TV show on, you might hear tricks like take an Advil. I've heard that helps some people because mm-hmm. it blocks the THC receptors, apparently. Peppercorns, apparently, can help people if you chew on peppercorns. Yeah, hibiscus tea, I heard. Hibiscus tea might be one, mm-hmm. yep. Coffee, I know mm-hmm. helps some people, but be careful with that because it can yeah. induce anxiety, <laughs> right? Um, but do what works for you. Um, and try not to recommend things to people that you don't know much about, right? Yeah. Like, I wouldn't yeah. tell someone, drink coffee right now. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, first step would be that person, like, their friends, they know where this kind of is coming from. That would be helpful. Like, just, just know. like, yeah, just know what is going mm-hmm. on and, like, you should be fine. Before and know you know your dose, too. Yeah, like you yeah. said earlier, start yeah, low. Of course. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah start low. Like, what are the most calls that you guys get in psychedelics? Psychedelics, it's actually... And other drugs. And other drugs, yeah. yeah. So with the psychedelics, it'll normally be the stronger ones, like LSD, because that one's usually um, the more shocking effects on someone when they're not expecting mm. it. Psilocybin, too, but I don't actually get a lot of those calls. I don't hear about many people getting called to mushrooms or being brought into hospital. They're the lowest, by the way, on the Global Drug Survey of Emergency Room Visits. I think it's there's something deep in a mushroom experience that you just know you're okay. And like anyone who's died in the past, there's the two people in history. It wasn't from the mushrooms. One of them had a heart transplant, I think, that year. <laughs> you know, things like that. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, okay. <laughs> People with heart transplants don't always last long, always. Sometimes they're not having the best situation anyways. Um, and I think it's another time someone like fell off of a, into a river or something. But I think you can do that with alcohol. You can do that tired. The most impairing things being fatigued. So the worst psychedelic, I would say, not worst, but most common calls is to laced psychedelics. So LSD, when it's laced with that, uh, is it 2CB M-bomb, I believe? I'm trying to remember the name of it. But M-bomb. There's dr- M-bomb. Yeah, M-bomb. Yeah, where it actually affects your heart rate and blood pressure. MDMA and ecstasy. So that's the one we might get called to the most because it's laced with speed the most. Mm-hmm. So unregulated drugs is the answer. Like if yeah. you have them unregulated, there could be speed in there. There could be GHB. There could be fentanyl. You know, mm-hmm. so... If people test their drugs, they wouldn't have to call ambulances as much. Um, If we had regulated these drugs to make sure that people have at least knowledge of safe access or the ability to test, that might change it. Like decriminalization cuts away the the, um, um, mafia mob aspect of it all, right? Hopefully. Um, So we'll see. I mean, like as long as people, you know, LSD and ecstasy, it's usually when people have it least. That's all I'll say. So if you can test your drugs, you're better. How did I test it? Aren't there like places that... Uh, they've now opened so people can send in their synthetic stuff and then they can do the spectral analysis and testing. Do the mass spectrum testing. We're yeah. trying to get those at our supervising consumption sites, but um, there's a lot of pushback from the government, obviously. Not obviously, but I mean just political ideology behind yeah. it. Um, we're trying to get these around. I think you can send them off places in like Europe, but I don't know how that works with border oh. security. Yeah. Um, Trip Project, what they try to do is share their results that they get at music festivals throughout. Yeah. 
and they try to post them online. So, and they'll share like descriptions of what the drug looked like. So, so you, if you had the pill, you can actually look at it and compare it and go, oh shit, I have that one. I better throw this out. Or they'll share that says, this one's 100% MDMA. Oh, okay, that person doesn't have to worry as much. Um, but yeah, like the doses. And like alcohol is probably the worst overall, any drug. Yeah. You know, stepping outside of psychedelics. Like no one I've ever seen that I'm worried about their health with a psychedelic ever. It's mostly just holding space. So I think all paramedics and police officers especially should learn how to hold space. Learn how to do trip sitting. Because it works for psychosis too. Mm-hmm. It works for dementia. When people are in states where they're not able to control their prefrontal cortex and to control their guided thought process, people need their space held. Even if you're in a situation that like you need to get them out of the house to go to the hospital or something, we need patience and we need energy to calm down. Um, so yeah. Yeah, like that police officer with the van in North York, the shooting, and he didn't pull the trigger. That was like yeah. a great example. He <laughs> held space. You know, he, yeah. that one thing I love is how he went for the siren to turn it off. Yeah. His siren was on, and that's sometimes um, police officers, when they get out of their car quickly in a rush, they will leave the siren on by accident. He saw that the guy um, was in distress, so he ran over and turned off the siren. And that was a useful thing to do to calm down the situation more, and he can actually talk to him now. Hmm. Um, and he also, that's also different per person. Like, I don't know what his experiences were before that moment, right? Did he have different training, maybe? Maybe he had mental health awareness, because I think it came out that um, Alex had autism, right? and struggle with that a bit so i think it was an interesting example that if you can really just take the extra training i taught in nova scotia um, an altered states and psychosis course for some of the paramedics there and an emergency room doctor showed up and this is perfect because um every time i started to talk about things like psychedelics and cannabis they'd pipe in with well i've heard there's no research behind that it was great (laughs) because i got to kind of like use that as a guide to show it really is there um, yeah. But with psychosis, a lot of them left. One of my friends messaged me. He said a week after that course, he had a call to a woman in psychosis um, who was in police custody. And he said he was able to hold, use those same Zendo project types yeah. of uh, trip sitting mm-hmm. lines. And it worked. And she was able to not have to go to jail. He was able to transport her to the hospital where she could get the right psychiatric care. Um, and recently I had another course where I taught where a firefighter got to use it as well. And a woman didn't have to be tasered. <laughs> because they came out of a drug overdose and they were manic and he was able to use the steps. Yeah, I down. saw one of them on YouTube. Yeah, that was the one, that yeah, was yeah. the one. Yeah. That was um, really interesting. And as well received, but um, yeah. some people I could see their eyes like, ah, these people, and the worst thing is the stigma. Yeah. Um, did you see the video where in Pennsylvania, these two paramedics, they kicked a guy out of their ambulance um, out of anger because he was in psychosis and wouldn't tell yeah. his name and he ended up being hit by a car. Oh shit. Uh-huh. Yeah, so this happened like a couple months ago, almost a year now maybe. And the videos online, you can see it where they're just saying, "Give me your name." And he's in psychosis and he's just staring at them and he's nervous because they're not making him feel safe. So when someone's whether it's on a psychedelic or in a schizophrenic psychosis or acute psychosis, people need to feel safe. And if they see in your eyes that you're scared of them or frustrated, they feel that on a level that other people don't. That's why it's a gift in a lot of cultures because there's a different intonation with energy and social energy mm-hmm. and like you always see in like Shakespeare plays they say like that person with psychosis stealing the truth mm-hmm. because they see the truth sometimes a lot more than us and it's so funny when you see them calling out things to other paramedics or cops in the room <laughs> like like they'll actually call out people's personal flaws sometimes and you'll see their partner <laughs> look at them and be like you're right on the nose <laughs> you, know, you, you just met him and you got him right <laughs> yeah so I think learning about psychosis makes it more comfortable just like learning about psychedelics it makes you yeah. more comfortable cannabis 
Um, anyone who I know who uses these things effectively and it's helping their quality of life, they have educated themselves. That tends yeah. to be it, and they care and respect it. Um, so I hope more people get that training. It's now mandatory that police officers in the OPP have mental health training. It's now become mandatory. That's amazing. That's good. Yeah, that's freaking amazing. What is um the what are the has anybody died from MDMA? MD- the pure oh, MDMA that you uh, guys get the call. I have to see like any literature, but um personally, me hearing about pure MDMA overdoses never. It's any time that's happened where. MDMA was in their system and they've died. It's been due to heat stroke usually or dehydration. Pure MDMA at the dose, especially it's usually given out in the one to 200 microgram range max. I've heard some pills having as much as 400 micrograms sometimes that are pure and that's a lot, but the research isn't showing that they have the worst hemodynamic effects when they're pure. It's when it's laced with speed, like in amphetamines and like things like that, like crystal meth was rarely in there, but it's going to be usually speed and speed has a lot of bad effects on the heart. You hear a lot of students and journalists who are using Adderall and Dexedrine, which is the same chemical structure as speed, it's the same thing, um, and they have heart defects and stuff that come out of it, heart attacks and stress problems. So I think that's the issue, again, is regulation. So with MDMA, I don't hear about people ever dying from pure MDMA. We see other things in their blood work. Yeah. Mm. There was a girl that in Australian music festival that died from MDMA, but the the problem was, she was in a line for checking, and then she was afraid that they're gonna catch her with MDMA, so she took all of it, and that's caused dehydration and stuff, and that's what, yeah, this the the thing about the police and the control is actually harming people because people are gonna do it anyways, and you need to educate them rather than like enforce and try to like push law on them and like scare them. Well, can, Toronto has that uh, law that you were talking about earlier where like if somebody um, catches you with certain amount of pills or something, or like you call, I'll let you maybe like explain this better because- Yeah, no problem. Yeah. The Good Samaritan Act, um, cause we teach for, I teach first aid as well. And one of the biggest things we throw in now is the newest law. So that used to just be, you get consent from someone you're helping, use common sense, stay in your training, don't do anything negligent, don't abandon them, and then you can't go to jail if you try to help that person. The newest one now is if you have minor possession of an illicit substance that is deemed illegal in Canada, um, so usually that would be like heroin, MDMA, LSD, if you stay with somebody until emergency crews arrive and the police show up and they find a minor amount, and you have to look online for like what the different doses, or sorry, amounts are per substance, um, with cannabis, when it was illegal, it used to be under 30 grams, was just considered minor. So, like, I don't know, with cocaine, maybe it's under a gram. I don't know. Just look into these things. Um, but if you have minor possession, you don't go to jail. They don't criminalize you for it. They might confiscate it. But they're saying, thank you for staying with your friend. Because the reason so many people are dying of overdoses of opioids is because they would have to leave the person in the street. Because if you have, people think that the only people doing these drugs are people who are dejected from society no, 80% of people started with a normal doctor prescription and had to escalate through societal holes and different biopsychosocial factors to now end up using this on the street. So like, when you take that into account, we do need to support these people like a diabetic, that someone has a problem with their pancreas. That's kind of like what we have in our structures in our brain with addiction and trauma. There's changes and damages and, and things that need to be worked through. So Narcan and Naloxone for someone having these overdoses or like harm reduction for psychedelics like trip sitting is just like giving insulin to somebody who's diabetic. 
until they can either find out why they're diabetic or if they have to live with it, then we should keep them alive anyways. Hmm. Like saying that if someone's going to use fentanyl or heroin their whole life, we should just stop helping them. That's like saying a type one diabetic who's never going to get better, which just not help them. <laughs> Do you know how many diabetics that we wake up? Like that's the most common, one of the more common paramedic calls is a diabetic whose blood sugar is dropped and we're waking them up. We don't look at that as a burden. I will wake up that same person a thousand times a day if I need yeah. to, because some diabetes is really hard to live with. And no matter what you try, you can't regulate it. Heart disease. Some people will try everything and they'll have seven heart attacks, you know, and you don't go, well, stop helping them the seventh. They're clearly not taking control of their life. They're using the system. No, but people say that with addiction all the time. But the thing is, if you're homeless, and especially where I work, a lot of our population is homeless um, with severe mental health problems. You can't just walk into a job and then make your life better tomorrow. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. we will wake those same people up with Narcan, with breathing. We'll give them community health care until they either get better or at least stay alive. And it's like mm-hmm. human beings, right? And psychedelics, mm-hmm. I think, are opening that up now to healthcare workers that we need to see people all as human beings, no matter what's afflicting them. Yeah. yeah. Addiction well, is actually kind of like just a damage and love that they mm-hmm. have and community and family and stuff. And once you're on the street, it's really hard to get any of those things back. One of the coolest things that happened yeah. after an overdose and near-death experience is something that fascinates me a lot. That's why I had Daniel Gregg on mine. Yeah. Talk with the neuro- neuroscience and changes he's there. He's amazing. Oh, he's great. Oh, shout out to him. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and, uh, he, and Sebastian Claremont as well as a filmmaker. He was talking about this and one that I'm going to release soon. But um, the near-death experience does a lot of what the psychedelic experience does. And... It does for everyone in the room. Um, your last guest that you had on was Alina? Yeah. 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 We, I think mentioned, or no, sorry, I was listening to that one. But before that, Maddie, the one Maddie. with Maddie, he was yeah. saying that psychedelic experiences happen everywhere. Like yeah. that it's not always on the drug. Well, when someone's having a near death experience, everyone in the room feels the psychedelic effect. And if you look around the room in everyone's eyes, so like whether it's in an emergency room with doctors and nurses doing CPR on someone, whether it's two first aiders that found a car accident and they're trying to help someone stop their bleeding, regardless of how experienced or professional they are, this psychedelic vision starts to come into their eyes. Not saying vision like they see things, but if you look in their eyes, it looks like they're on mushrooms. (laughs) It looks like they're on LSD. And like we're so connected empathetically that some partners um, that are paramedics, some firefighting teams, some doctors and nurses don't have to talk very much. They just know how to flow into that experience. So when we have some people come out of an overdose and the first thing they see are us who are the regular people that work there, that they get to know us on a personal level. Um, there's this connection of like, I'm alive still. And Oh, you helped me stay alive. You care about me. Like, even though my family didn't care about me or whoever else doesn't care, you're here. And the last guy that we actually helped revive as soon as his color changed back and he started to regain consciousness, he started to talk about his mom. Instantly, oh, wow. without even looking into mm-hmm. any of our eyes, he just started looking mm-hmm. at the ground saying, I love my mom, I'm really sorry, I, I, I need to see my mom, and can anybody hug me? So I just gave him a big hug, <laughs> and, like, he, and then he's, he's just squeezing me like as tight as like my, my little sister would squeeze me at Christmas time, right? And I could just feel this like psychedelic connection, like if you've ever hugged somebody on mushrooms or on a high dose of edible, and you get this like, oh, I'm so happy you exist, and it was like, we were exchanging this. Um, and I noticed too, like in his eye, he had the teardrop tattoos and I was like, this is interesting because no matter how tough you are, no matter what you've been through, what traumas you've accumulated in life and defense mechanisms and a near death experience or right when you're in crisis, you become that child again. 
People dying of heart attacks, same thing. Yeah. Right the moment they rotate their last breath, they'll look at you like a child who's afraid to go on a roller coaster. Like, is it really going to happen? And sometimes we don't know. <laughs> My yeah. favorite question that paramedics have to answer sometimes is, am I going to die? <laughs> the answer is always, we don't know. We're going to do the best we can. <laughs> we are not prophets. <laughs> but no, it's, uh, I like that you bring that up. And the psychedelic experience, I think, is so valuable. But the only person I ever met that says he never needs a drug, he never needs a behavior, he could just sit and stare at a wall and be happy, he was almost pronounced dead at eight years old. <laughs> He survived a massive infection where a sick, where like a hospital was gonna pronounce him dead, and he survived and pulled through. He made peace that he was gonna lose his life at the young age of eight. Then came out of it, and he's the only person I know that doesn't need drugs. He doesn't need anything because he had that massive experience that mm -hmm. rewired his view of life and just being happy to breathe. Yeah. So powerful experiences people have. <laughs> yeah, the connection that you're talking about about um, when even. It happens naturally without psychedelics. I had that like on uh, LSE and mushroom. The, the idea of emergence, like of like this is you, you have to care. You have to care about like everything around you, people around you, your friends, your uh, community, everyone, and it, it brings that emergent like feeling of emergence, like inside your heart. Um, and people can see that, like when when you are like. Um, you're taking like psilocybin let's say with somebody like a friend or something and the two of you are in your room and talking you can see that in their eyes you can like even there are some crazy things that connections that like you say the right words at the exact perfect time for that yeah. person yeah and that person's like that's exactly what i needed to hear and yeah. their trauma get healed and like you mm. you wouldn't like want you would wonder like how much power that each person has where when it comes to helping their friends to heal the trauma and you can actually like get deep in there and like talk they talk to you and, and yeah people can heal each other themselves yeah i like that idea too of the healing where we're listening more than talking a lot with healing when your friends coming to you with a problem a lot of the time the least you say those moments that you're talking about where it falls oh this is what i have to say it's easier to listen for those and feel them come up and we're all different like where you feel an idea and where solar feels an idea they might be very different where you mm -hmm. feel a chill up your spine you might feel this like warmth in your chest mm -hmm. for me it's that like a warmth in my chest that okay i have to say this and the problem is as we grow through life we make mistakes with that you ever heard of like false positives and negatives where yeah, yeah where you, you try it try it out and then it doesn't go well so yeah. sometimes you pull away and but if you're guided with a good mentor or through many of these experiences, you learn when they come up. And listening to people with a mental health problem, we try to solve people's problems. But if we really just listen long enough until they just kind of get through it and they go, what do you think? Sometimes then, if you wait, it's there. Yeah. So, um, therapists who are listening, um, take that into consideration what you just said. That that moment where you feel it's the right thing to say, we barely want to give advice. We want to evoke that in the person. In that video that you were um, training other uh, paramedics or firefighters, um, you said something along the line of, you only have one shot, where like when you're talking to somebody out of the stress or something, you only have one shot and you have to be connected to take advantage of that. I like that. Yeah. Thanks for, yeah, that's, that's when I want to share more with my teach. I forgot about that line because I've made many mistakes um, with helping people in mental health crisis where I wasn't keeping track of that rule, that this is a constant connection that has to happen. And as soon as you violate that, if someone's in psychosis or is suicidal, those are both 
really hard brain states to manage. And if anyone listening lives with psychosis or suicidal thoughts, they can absolutely relate that you feel helpless to these things. And that you feel that sense of paranoia come up because we know the stigma's there. So um, being comfortable with that one shot idea is that you're not so worried about the pressure of making a mistake. It's that you want to provide safety and comfort. So like walking with like a warm body language that you care about this person. Like don't see it like, oh, this person's crazy and hearing voices, I'm nervous. Most violence in people with psychosis and crisis happens when they're instigated. It's only 10% of... Um, 10% of situations where someone in psychosis will become violent and it's because they're being triggered by you not keeping up that type of connection. And I've seen many police officers, partners, and myself where we made major mistakes just because we're tired maybe. And that's part of the whole in our society is that healthcare workers, first responders, and the average person, like when you're in traffic and someone cuts you off, how often is your first thought, oh, something's wrong in their life? Well, your first thoughts, I hope something's wrong in their life. And yeah. It's we don't give each other that benefit. So when someone says to you, I'm hearing voices and I'm terrified right now and this has never happened before or maybe it's happened for a while, you just saying, I don't even know what to say, but I'm here for you and I want to help you get the help you think you need. That That's not crazy. That it's normal. When you're stressed out, psychosis can happen to anybody. And that's true. We didn't know this. Like you can, There's a gene variant for sure. Mm -hmm. But you can get stress-related psychosis where your brain just can't handle it anymore. So it starts to change in the way that it's flowing. And we're starting to see that. I've seen students come from out of country. Halifax has a lot of international students where the lack of support from the family, see, because they don't have that rule. And the friend once on a phone call called her friend to say that she was hearing voices and the friend broke that one shot rule and said, that's the craziest thing I heard, I'm calling the police. Oh shit. So she grabbed the knife Yeah. and that escalates. So yeah. when, you're first, when you're first responder or the average person at all, who's helping someone who's in a state of crisis, suicidal or psychosis, you want to remember that they just need connection. They don't need an answer. You can't hmm. just solve it. And sometimes a crisis line is the best thing for somebody. And tell them that if you call a crisis line, it doesn't mean they're getting arrested or going to a hospital. It means that they can talk to someone on the phone anonymously who understands these things better than anyone else. And it's their job or their passion to want to help them. And then if they need to maybe have a, a crisis, mobile crisis team show up, mm -hmm. if you can just keep that connection going and reminding them that it's to keep them in control of their life, it's not going to take away autonomy from them, that they're more open to having that assessment. Because a mobile crisis team is great. Have you guys heard of this in Toronto now? No. Nope. If you call 911, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad. So this is why we want to keep these messages out there. It's that if you call and say, my friend's hearing voices, they go, would you like a mobile crisis team? And this is exclusive to Toronto, but there's a lot of areas where you can call these lines yourself. And they'll decide if they can dispatch a, um, a crisis nurse or a social worker with a police officer that's non-uniformed. And they come to the scene like paramedics would, but for your psychological emergency. And if you're suicidal, they can decide if you're really in a risk zone of we need to get you somewhere safe or wait, maybe we can give you a care plan and follow up. Um, because not everybody needs an ambulance, right? Yeah. Um, so that's actually a really good thing. Look for your local crisis lines and take a mental health first aid course or take a workshop in your local area um, and just educate yourself on what are these conditions. Suicide prevention is one of the biggest things that we don't focus on. Um, and psychosis because when you're isolated and alienated, it's a lot harder. So when it comes to that one-shot rule, just remember that if you remain truthful to that person, that your intentions are to be there for them and find them the support they need, they're not going to be startled and see you as an enemy. Um, people just need to see the connection. Yeah, and um, <laughs> that's, that's very true. Yeah. I've made, I'll share the worst mistake I made. Uh, was a person on a, a typical psych 
um, psych emergency transfer from a hospital where they came in hearing voices and they were they were feeling suicidal and they had to be admitted so we're taking them to the psychiatric hospital and I was brand new I was two years in and I was naive to psychosis we weren't taught as paramedics it's a one week course in mental health I heard um, doctors too it's like a two week course in mental health training oh. unless you specialize so on the way there he um, started to look at me very 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 assertively and afraid and he looked at the paperwork I was holding and he said let me see that I said, well, I can't legally do that. It's between the doctors. I'm not supposed to open this. It's for the other doctor to see. He said, well, why not? It's saying stuff about me, doesn't it? It's saying bad things about me, and I need to see that now. I said, no, listen, it's not. And you can tell I was scared now, because I didn't expect him to call me out like that. He looked, he was very calm and quiet the whole time until now. So he saw my body language change, and that's all it took. I showed him that I was a threat. Hey, he's scaring me right now. And when people see fear, they know that anger and self-defense is a really close circuit to that mm -hmm. deep down like if you started back into a corner i started to come towards you my first thought is oh he's gonna punch me probably i'm backing you into a corner right mm -hmm. so we're in a locked ambulance and he knows this so he starts to escalate he grabs the paperwork out of my hand so my partner who's super experienced and she's wonderful my first ever partner um she sees that this happening in the rearview mirror and calls for security Pulls into the hospital. I opened the door for him and let him out because he was feeling threatened. I didn't want him to feel like he had to hurt me. He got out and they're able to stop him and help him and de-escalate him. And that was the biggest lesson I learned is that even if someone feels threatened, keep a calm body language. All you have to do is remember, my intention was never to threaten him. All I had to do is sit there and go, oh, hey, buddy, you know what? This is bullshit that you can't see this paperwork. I agree. I, and you know, if I was in your position, I'd be fucking terrified. And you know what? If you don't like me right now, man, I understand. And I'm sorry about that. And our system sucks for helping people like you. And we need to get better at this. Because we are, we are both human beings. And if I had been more like that, a little different. <laughs> and when I started to do that more and learn about these things like control and safety and, and helping and being empathetic, I stopped seeing these issues come up. Yeah. And people started to be receptive. Well, when, when it happens, you kind of like you get shocked if it happens for the first time or second time or something. It happened to mm -hmm. me um, personally when one of our relatives has uh, got a fight uh, and with my sister and, and anyway, so it's like I was in that situation and the person is like yelling and he was like really aggressive. His voice was like all the way to the top and, and all I did, I was like just standing in the corner just like looking at him and then uh, all I was like repeating It's like, hey man, just before you leave the house, make sure you stay in your car for like quiet 20 minutes mm -hmm. to just keep calm. And I mean this, I really care for you. Please do not like hurt yourself or like, and that thing, it, it started like firing him up more and it, it went the other way. But like eventually as I kept repeating it and like look at his eyes and I'm like, look, I care about you. This is, and then he started to like, calm down. And that connection, it was just, It was like one of the rare things that like a rare thing that happens in your life. But like when it happens, if you're kind of like ready for that moment, it it can make a change. Yeah. A lot of what you hear with psychedelics and ayahuasca visions are is remember to love, right? Like yeah. love can be so powerful. And yeah. you said it like the more you repeated it, yeah. you were probably terrified. I'm sure. And I would have been too yeah, you terrified, get terrified, right? Yeah, yeah. And he sees that. So that's why it's escalating. It's, oh, you're saying that, but I yeah. see you don't mean it. But then when you really sunk that in and he yeah. knew, because it's true, it's your relative. Yeah. He didn't want him to hurt himself, and he yeah. realized that and felt the love. That's when it comes down. So there's a rule of eye contact. They say it's don't be afraid of it, and obviously don't oversell it. <laughs> like you yeah. stare into someone's soul yeah, yeah. too much, right? 
but don't be afraid. And when you say powerful statements, that's when you need that eye contact. So if, if I'm looking at you right now and say, yeah, I love you, man, and I, I look down to the ground, that doesn't work. But if I say, I really love you and I care for you, I'm looking at you, that solidifies it. And the more intense the situation, and you remind, remind yourself to breathe. See, you were talking about meditation and breathing. Practice breathing. <laughs> Never forget to breathe. Because if you can remember to breathe, like you're probably, I'm, were you in tune with your breathing at a point during that? Where you yeah, like, yeah. Deep yeah, breath? Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, I do like martial arts like regularly. Like, that's yeah. why martial arts is so effective. Yeah. They say you won't even be the one to throw the first punch because you've learned how to stay calm. Yeah. And you're effective. So if you take those deep breaths, you provide oxygen to your prefrontal cortex. You get out of your fight or flight brain. I don't know if there's anyone who listens to uh, Sum 41 out there. There's a song called In Too Deep, which is a very popular song mm. all through the 2000s, where one of the lines is, I'm trying to stay up above in my head instead of going under. And the brain structures work that way. You yeah. want to stay up yeah. in the prefrontal cortex where you're in control yeah. and don't fall into the amygdala where you're all impulse, right? Yeah. So in that moment, part of your brain, if you're wired differently, could have been to grab them or something or to run. But your brain was wired there with absolute love. And it was a family function, right? Yeah. So the environment, it's like your yeah. brain's already looking for that. So if you're a police officer and you're going in and you had a gun pulled on you the last two shifts and your brain's now seeing, oops, your brain's now seeing this environment as I have to be defensive. Yeah. Well, that's, your brain's going to see those patterns, right? Yeah. But if you go in with, wow, everyone's different and, it's, and we have to love through this. If you have PTSD, it's not that easy. You have to have that worked on as well. Yeah, yeah. You can't just say it's not going to happen. Yeah. But the way that that moment was framed was beautiful. Yeah. So try your best to remind yourself to breathe and that it's their emergency. And do what you think you would hope would be done for you. Do you guys teach uh, crisis to companies and like public and all that? Now we do. I'm, yeah. I've just helped with uh, the company I work for now. Yeah. I help them develop mental health programs and addictions workshops. So... My goal now is to get them out to as many companies as possible for as cheap as possible. Like my goal is to make them free for all high schools, make them free for companies, just like boom, um, just like a couple hour workshops. But we have a two day mental health programs we teach where it's mental health first aid. We have, um, I'm trying to get forward a crisis intervention one. Um, I teach harm reduction now. So now they're allowing me to teach these things like overdose prevention harm reduction and cannabis health and wellness. They're That's allowing amazing. us now. Yeah. yeah. So I'm working towards um, getting those out more as a social service worker because that's one of the better credentials I can have right now to try and promote these things where they're needed most. So um, walking into places where there's a lot of um, impoverished clients, like in community centers who can't afford these trainings and trying to get to them for free, I think is big. So yeah, we are trying to do this as much as possible, the training. What is the idea behind the supervised injection sites? So yeah, perfect. So this is the, what we learned in Portugal um, is in other areas where they've decriminalized drug use and tried to keep people healthy and alive. Um, like I said earlier with diabetes and heart attacks, if you think that supervised injection sites promote drug use, then you think that cardiac cath labs promote heart attacks. <laughs> like in Brampton, for example, really high heart disease rates, really big population in Brampton now, massive population. Um, so there's a lot of heart attacks. And the problem was they had to ship people over to Trillium in Mississauga you're having a massive heart attack and people could die on the way. It's a long drive and the 410, 410, I tell you, if you've ever driven on that. <laughs> um, so the point being is they put a cath lab in that Brampton hospital, a, a real heart center where they can fix the heart attack right in the heart of where they happen, literally speaking. <laughs> and people have actually collapsed dead in those centers visiting family members. Sure. And right not, but the best part is because they drop in the center, they fix it right there and they're back to life. <laughs> so an overdose prevention site is as if Everyone who's about to have a heart attack went and sat next to a cardiologist 
the day it happened. And the thing is with addiction, it's actually a lot more powerful of a day-to-day struggle because heart attacks, like you can avoid them on a much more mass scale and get the help you need without stigma. But if you tell your boss that you're addicted to heroin, you're on the street and that means you have so much more pain and then more drugs. And the thing about drug use, it's quelching pain. It's a pain thing. It's not about escaping society. It's about getting through that pain. And most of the people at our sites, they go out, they, after they use their drug, whatever it is, they go out and work. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people actually have day jobs too. It's not just homeless population. Some people will come in and they need to do this just to go out and panhandle. Some people, it's just to go back to be a construction worker because their shoulder is so sore and that comes from depression sometimes. Mm-hmm. A lot of males, when they have severe depression and anxiety, it comes out in hip, neck and back pain and shoulder pain. So you go to your doctor, you get a prescription, boom. And then once they find out that you're misusing, they take away your prescription. They don't go, oh, let's get you with an addictions counselor. They go, oh, you can't take that anymore. So then they go take it from their friend. And then their friend says, hey, you know you can save money by injecting this, right? Okay. So with our site, what we're trying to do is meet people where they're at, at the, the, um, when they've fallen through every hole and all they have left is this drug to prevent suicide. So addiction usually is the rung on the ladder right before suicide. Anyone who's experiencing extreme pain, feeling hopeless. So the, the four major feelings that cause this would be confusion, fear, sadness, and hopelessness. And if these four um, feelings rip inside of us deep enough in our core hierarchy of structures in our mind, in our psyche, we feel this existential pain. And suicide often is what the brain sends to us as a way to relieve it. So if a drug or a behavior like gambling, sex addiction, taking heroin or cocaine or using cannabis or whatever it is, drinking coffee, helps that pain go away and makes you more optimal, that's what people sometimes need for a bit. And it's not that we should promote these drugs to people, it's that when they've already found that and that's already what they're using, as we know, 80% of people using heroin on the street started with a prescription. So it wasn't their fault. (laughs) They listened to their doctor and then they fell through the cracks in our society of criminalizing drug users, of not giving the right social supports. To see a counselor now if you're suicidal, it's a three-month wait list. Good luck. Like, <laughs> So you can't just fix your problems and avoid spiraling. So people fall fast. And if you get found that you've been using a drug, you lose your kids sometimes. There's CAS workers who will take your kids away even still that use cannabis, even though it's legal now. Mm-hmm. But you can drink your face off and they don't give a shit. <laughs> I'll tell you right now, alcohol is the worst thing for families. I've seen the most child abuse, elder abuse, spousal abuse, self-abuse from alcohol. With cannabis, you, a mom smokes pot four times a day and they go, oh, it's too much. What's too much? Does it make her a good mother? Well, the kids think so, but they don't know better. Oh, maybe they know better than you. What makes their mom a good mom? Hmm. Well, my mom listens to me now. She plays attention. She plays with me. Because bipolar disorder and PTSD in women goes way underdiagnosed. And cannabis, hmm. a lot of the times, can relieve these symptoms. So if you're someone who finds this and you're a mother, you get to be a good mother this way. Heroin's a fun one when you talk about PTSD because a lot of paramedics, a lot of nurses, they use heroin. I won't use, I won't give the name of respect and dignity for this wonderful man, but one of my um, colleagues I worked with had a uh, struggle where they were using morphine that they for a long time, and they had been a wonderful advanced care paramedic for like ten plus years. They were in management role and everything. If they showed up to help you having a heart attack or a severe call, you were lucky. They were going to save your life. This person was amazing. If you're going to die in their care, they did it all right. They did. They knew all the research. He knew how to do his skills the fastest. He knew what was important. He knew how to move you to that hospital the best way. Then they found out when he uh, had an unfortunate instance with a relationship, his 
spouse at the time got angry at him and told that he was using morphine. Uh-huh. And at the time, no one guessed. If you brought this person's name up, they'd be like, oh my god, you worked with him? You're lucky. You must have learned so much. And once they found out, they fired him. And it's that's like, an unfortunate. And it's like, obviously they have to, right? Because yeah. like, he's using yeah. this drug. But if we change that around to, oh my god, why did you have to use it? Yeah. It's not, and Gabor Mate said this, um, it's not why the drug use, but why the pain. Because that's it. Once Most people in my injection site, I, I started out saying things like, well, I hope this helps relieve your pain. A lot of them will say things like, well, you know what? I don't like doing this. This is not fun. This is not going to relieve my pain. It's going to help. It's going to help my pain, but it's not going to relieve my problems. Mm-hmm. I still have to go outside these walls and live my problems. So when we see people using heroin at our site, the way they work is we try to educate them. We try to connect them with social services. We try to get them if they're missing shelter, if they're not having food, we try to get them connected with that, meet their hierarchy of needs. And a lot of the times they cut down on their drug use then. The more needs that are met and the more sorry, needs that are met, the more opportunity and self-actualization afforded to them to move up in life, the less they use the drugs. That was like cannabis. When I was severely depressed and was going through a lot of different anxiety, I was smoking a lot of cannabis. Like a lot. And the thing was, when I started to find out where my pain was coming from and dealing with it at the root causes, now I use it as just this wonderful tool that I don't even need it every day. And it's one of those things that you have to find out where. Alcoholics as well. You have to find out where that pain is, right? So with these sites, there are some people that while they're injecting, will actually counsel them. We talk to everybody there. We get to know them on a personal level. Um, and this, the full-time workers especially who are there almost every day, <laughs> they see these people basically like other cousins, like mothers and brothers and such. And um, there's a real love that we grow. And then when they see that, they tell us more. Because mm-hmm. if you just met me and I'm a psychologist who's wearing my lab coat, I don't fucking know you and I work in a hospital, like you're not going to tell me shit. Why would you? You don't trust me. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the times when people get pulled into hospitals with addictions and mental health problems, they're treated like shit, like second-class citizens. Especially with minority groups, African-American, First Nations, you see this a lot where as soon as we say, look, we're going to have to take you to the hospital and if they've had a bad experience or more than a few, they're going to say, I'm not fucking going. I had a guy with a skull fracture, poor, poor guy, First Nations. And he said this to me, he said, because I'm native, I don't want to go to that hospital. He had a skull fracture. And he said, the way they treat me there, I won't say the hospital's name. He said, the way they treated me there last time, I'd rather be dead. And because people don't get educated, yeah. like they just, yeah. you're angry at me and I'm, and I'm tired. So fuck you. Right. That's what people yeah. do. So yeah, you're talking about your podcast about like the, all these yeah. like facilities, they need to have more people and like bring balance in like yeah. the nurses and doctors life. Yeah. And so they don't overwork yeah. them. Yeah. And this whole thing, it's just something that needs to be built up from fundamentals. But in a society level, it would be great if like your friends, somebody around you that like they get mm. educate themselves mm. and they help yeah. you with your trauma. Because as, yeah. as I'm like getting from um, what you've been saying is trauma is basically the leading cause for all these anger and yeah. all these problems and all of that. And if you have somebody in around in the circle of people around you that they can help you with, I don't know, like just sit through your psychedelic trip or something, yeah. just listen to you and heal your trauma slowly and you be there for them, it would be fantastic. Yeah. And I think they know who they are, yeah. those people. Yeah. Like they're your friends. Yeah. There are certain friends who you know will ask you more than yeah. others. Hey, how are you doing today? Like, yeah. Look yourself. Not every friend will be like this. So if you're wired that way that you're like, oh, I could be bothered doing it. I want to hear someone's problems. That's fine. Like not all mm. wired that way. Yeah. So not everyone's wired to be a surgeon. Like, can you imagine being an air, an airway surgeon? The oral surgeons who have to cut, like the ENT doctors, have to mm. cut in your throat 
to be a human being wired to be able to cut into someone else's throat because you're helping them, right? But like, damn, to do that's pressure. Well, yeah. to sit with someone in their psychedelic space or in crisis, that's painful too. Because you have to sink into empathy. Have you ever heard of Brene Brown? Um, she's a wonderful speaker and I share a video with Mental Health First Aid where it comes to listening that you have to be empathetic, not sympathetic. So if you're going through a horrible time, you sit there and you go, oh, that sucks. Well, hey, what do you want me to pour you a drink or something? It's like, well, it doesn't really connect anything. But if you say, man, you look in pain. Oh my fuck, man. Let's do something about this. Is there anything hmm. we can do to work through this? Yeah. That's empathy. So we do need more training in empathy. Yeah. Yeah. When I was listening to you talking about um, the the trouble that people are in, and it just requires some simple lines and things to control the situation and i think everybody should know these like I, f- I felt like i don't know people who are in that sort of emergency ever but if i knew that i would feel like i did something meaningful there's five steps you can follow for that yeah and they're simple mental health first aid has five steps assessing risk as soon as if you, like if you your situation with with it was your <laughs> uncle right it's a great example of that if he had grabbed for a weapon or something it's get out Call 911, get out. That's like one of those times it sucks to say this. It's like you're having a heart attack. Call an ambulance. Sorry, you're not figuring this one out. <laughs> but if, like if someone says to you, I'm going to kill myself and then storms out of a room, you have to call at that point. Or since I'm going to go and kill so-and-so and then they storm out of that room and get in their car and drive off, it's, you got to call. So what, what, the, what I've learned doing peer support is that these five steps work really well. If you assess that risk and they, you know that they're not going to hurt somebody, like your uncle there is perfect. You know, yeah. he's not going to hurt someone. He's just upset yeah then you listen and said why is he upset you're hearing the conversation you knew it was because he's not feeling loved maybe he needs that compassion so after you've understood the person and you've listened to what they had to say and you cared and they see you cared then you can give them that reassurance you're loved what you're going through is normal it's not a weakness of character it's your brain right now is overwhelmed it's okay i'm here for you we're gonna work through this and then the next step would be connecting them with supports so what have they tried before that they know works is usually a really good starting point. Maybe they have great meditation skills or they just need to leave. I just need to leave the room. Okay, cool. Go leave the room. Let's go for a walk. Giving people options, right? Then that last step is do they actually need some professional support maybe? So if what they're going to do to cope not healthy, maybe they say, I'm just going to go and sit down and drink a bottle of wine. It's like, well, <laughs> what can we connect them with? Like, hey, look, have you tried a crisis line? Hey, has this happened a lot? Well, I have these outbursts every Thanksgiving. Well, maybe we should see a counselor. We tried that. Ask people what they've tried and what they're willing to try. We don't want to just tell people, get on a drug. You got to take an antidepressant. Or you better talk to a psychologist because that drives disconnection. Do you have any information about um, the therapist or like psychologist um, being um, part of the OHIP? Mm, that's, that's, that's a real struggle, right? Because they're not covered very much. No, they're not. And even for paramedics and first responders, I'm not sure with firefighters specifically and cops, but for paramedics, we have to pay out of pocket. Like I'd pay like $160 for a session with a psychologist. Wow. And the first session, they don't really get very far because they can't. They have to get to know you. Yeah. So at the end of that session, it's like, okay, that's it. And I'm like, oh my God, it's 160 bucks, And like, yeah. I have to come back for sure. Yeah. That's not good because where I was working, I'm really low paramedic wages, like 22 to 24 an hour. We're here, it's 30, 30 to 40 an hour. Um, so I don't, can't save up for these. So I had to switch to OHIP, which was a counselor, so there's a waiting list. The most things that are covered by OHIP have wait lists. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to say the quality of care is going to be any less. A lot of the people working as social workers, social service workers, counselors, life coaches, all that, wonderful. 
But the problem we run into there is that you can't get to that next step sometimes. So like maybe you do need a psychologist. Like most mental health problems that are really severe, it takes like years to get a handle on. Like major depressive disorder <clears throat> doesn't typically go away. So you need to be able to spend years finding the root cause. Is it genetic? <clears throat> there are some people who don't produce serotonin in their brain, genetically, and it's in their lineage. So they can't just solve it with like a couple sessions with a psychologist. They might need to go to a psychiatrist now who can now prescribe medications. Okay, well, how do you get there? You have to pay for a session usually. <laughs> so some people who need those next steps, that's not being covered. Did you hear of any platforms that were like conservative versus NDP, liberal, green, who was going to try and do that? Like make psychologists more affordable under a whole hit? Not really. They're just really? fighting with each other. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love yeah, that. Yeah. And that's the best answer. Yeah, they're the just more, Yeah, the more I listen to all of them, I'm like, uh, what are they doing? Yeah, it's like, it becomes a chess this? match. Do you realize yeah. this? People yeah. stop voting for the people. They just vote for who's getting the less votes in their riding to yeah. tip the scales a bit. It's like this chess match of like, well, everyone's voting liberal, so I'm going to vote conservative. And everyone's voting NDP, so I'm doing this. But yeah. no, I think... Um, we really need to focus on that more is getting the research in people's faces so they have to make it mandatory. Because um, one of the things with social workers and social service workers is you're allowed to actually waive fees like as part of the college's scope. That if, if you came to me and you're like absolutely suicidal and you're like, I, you're the only person I can talk to, man. I, I'm going to do this. And like, I, if I know I can see you for a couple of weeks, maybe I can get myself in order. Well, if you can't afford that, what am I supposed to say? Go fuck yourself? <laughs> no, it's, you know what? I think that I can benefit you at least. I'm going to waive my fees. Perfect. But the thing is then, how's that person going to get income? Because if that's their income, so OHIP should have maybe at least to start out a special category of like this person is in crisis and under my college license for the Ontario College of Social Workers and Social Service Workers I designate and sign that this person needs these fees waived like their life is in danger if not then they should make those special cases at first right and see how that works yeah and if it turns out that oh it's too much money is being spent on taxpayer dollars then well at least we tried that yeah. Because right? yeah. yeah, it's not fair that it, it's a it's a if you have to have a certain amount of income to get the proper yeah. care. Yeah. Yeah. And um, what are your thoughts on uh, MDMA therapy? Wonderful. I mean, <laughs> I've done a lot of research projects on it in my addiction mental health training, and my teacher and the chair of um, Centennial College allowed me to actually officially teach a lesson to that class that I was going through and save it up in their curriculum. So if you go to the D2L, I think, of Centennial College, you can access this. And what I was doing was sharing all the up-to-date research on psilocybin versus MDMA. And what we're seeing is that if used properly, especially with the right intention set and setting, there is those up to, I think the official was like 68% with the recent study, Hmm. but we've seen some go up to 80% of effectiveness and then the follow-up. So I think if we get that protocol nailed and MAPS did great, the FDA has made a breakthrough therapy. So I think that if we just keep writing this and really keeping a track of the research and we screen people properly for the right intention, I think this will go great. Um, PTSD is one of the leading um, things that's misdiagnosed. It's the leading killer of first responders and veterans. Um, for those of you who came out to the shock to awe um, screening, did you guys hear about that as well? Yeah. yeah were you there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I remember sorry. seeing it. Yeah, yeah. it was awesome. It was so busy that night though. Yeah. Holy crap. Yeah. We had a lot of things to keep track of, but um, the documentary explored veterans being able to access these things in ayahuasca. And <clears throat> if we start in the groups that have the highest populations, I think indigenous cultures, especially when it comes to entheogenic plants, 
Um, we here in BC, psilocybin use amongst some indigenous communities uh, are being squelched by the OPP out there, or RCMP, sorry. Um, mm. So the RCMP has been kind of tracking these areas where elders are trying to use psilocybin or peyote to heal their communities and they're being caught as drug dealers. You know, it's oh, disgusting. Yeah. Because we all know like what Canada has done to First Nations people or anyone who wasn't yeah. pure Britain, right? Yeah, yeah. Like it's terrible. So yeah. I think we have to start there as well and maybe giving them freedoms um, first, like religious freedoms. We've done that with the uh, different churches of Ayahuasca here in Montreal. Yeah. Is that the uh, Union de Vegetal. And um, Santa Daime. And Santa Daime, yeah. Where they have that. Well, why can't we do that for First Nations then? We are already doing yeah. that. Yeah. And then we're already doing that for the rest of Canada with these breakthrough therapies and psychology. So let's get more incentive to train more people for it. Let's really keep the research going. I think what they're doing in Europe and around the world is great. There's so much research. Um, it's already proven irrefutable that these are safer than anything else. Like yeah. if I'm going to go on an antidepressant, that's a higher risk than me having an MDMA session with a therapist. I'm sorry. Yeah. But most have a 30% success rate or efficacy rate. Many people, when they go on antidepressants, it saves their life. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, if it works for your body, make sure you see those doctors properly and you get on the right one for you. But if it doesn't work for you, don't feel like you're just someone who has to go through hundreds of drugs. You can find different things and try them. So I think if we educate people more on, hey, doing psilocybin with a therapist or at a cottage with some friends, um, I think psilocybin is easier to be more lenient recreationally with, if that makes sense. Just because mm. until we learn more about MDMA dosing, I think. I think there's a point yeah. where MDMA yeah. can be just as safe and easygoing as mushrooms and stuff, but people just don't know enough about dosing. Because it's yeah. like micrograms or milligrams. Yeah. Yeah. LSD, right? It's micrograms. Yeah. And so, the psychologists need to train themselves like on that yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. Follow up. So the first thing I think too is anyone who's willing, who's a, who a certified social worker, social service worker, should be allowed to give these integration sessions and guide people or at least integrate them without question by the law. Yeah. That'd be the first step. There needs there are there also needs to be a, a follow up care with MDMA with yeah. nutrition and like getting your serotonin up. So yeah. Yeah, nutritionists need to get more involved here too. Yeah. I think if yeah. we had centers, one per major city, at least where they have a, a social worker on staff or a social service worker, counselor, psychologist, a family doctor maybe or a nutritionist, where you can go there and participate in one of these plant medicines yeah. with a care plan and then have proper follow-up and maybe they have a phone intake or something mm -hmm. you can call and give your story you can come meet the, the yeah. intake specialist and they can decide which one's best for you like hey you know what it turns out that i know you've been diagnosed with all these things but it shows here that it's more likely ptsd maybe we don't go mm -hmm. for the psilocybin maybe we try mdma see mm -hmm. we need specialists to be on a team for yeah. that yeah. and then now that you're doing mdma how do we keep your serotonin from being yeah. depleted yeah and psilocybin how, what's the right diet right before yeah. you have a psilocybin session yeah. Retreats you hear about right now, there's a lot of them that are sprouting up in different areas. There are some really, really good ones in Ontario that are we're not allowed to really promote and they don't want us to really. A lot of the time these are word of mouth and they're done really well. Where the mm. people who are running them have the right intention and it's usually mm. a multidisciplinary group who yeah. got together and said, we're going to do this. There's some therapists who are under the table in Toronto who are doing this in the mm. States. Yeah. So instead of making it illegal for professionals to try what's best by evidence we should be allowing that yeah paramedics a lot of the time do very dangerous treatments for practice like and we have to because we have to learn right so when there's a new drug that comes up for heart attacks or for cardiac arrest there's times where we have to redo how to do cpr there's um times where we'll get an envelope that if you open the envelope it has a new study you have to follow on it so we have times where there's a new drug they want us to give during a heart attack 
And we have to learn in the field, otherwise we'll never know. But sometimes this drug, it's a blood thinner. That's not benign. But you're allowing paramedics and doctors and nurses to trial drugs all the time. Like some in a car accident when they trialed TXA, it's a transoxemic acid, that if you're bleeding internally, I give you this drug and it's going to clot you right up and save your life. And it's starting to work really well. But they had to trial that. <laughs> There's a chance they gave you that and you have a stroke. Okay, but, but oh, I want to try psilocybin with my therapist and then have follow-up care, that's fucking weird and dangerous. <laughs> like, come oh, on. Man. The TNK drug, I remember in Nova Scotia, we were trialing, it had too many adverse effects. Yeah. And people were they're having a heart attack. You can't just play around with that. But we have to sometimes learn through practice. And if we're doing that with things that are life-saving interventions, like cricothyrotomies, like cutting into someone's throat to put a tube in if they're electrocuted, like I had to read a study on that. We're ready to debate whether it's safer to cut into someone's throat or put a tube down their throat. Like there's different things we gotta do about that. So if you can do that with life-saving maneuvers, why can't we do that with psychedelics? Like allow a therapist to say, I'm willing to do this and pair them with a nurse or a paramedic then. Like the only thousands of paramedic and nursing students can't get jobs and they're willing to volunteer their time at supervised injection sites, at studies and stuff. Have a nurse and a paramedic there with a doctor that if you're so worried about MDMA hurting people yeah, yeah, yeah. or go to a music yeah. festival where they test these things. Yeah. 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 I uh, watched a documentary on Nova Scotia and like, the number of depression and like the natives where most of the cause of the depression comes from um, people getting addicted on alcohol and like uh, the price of alcohol up there is like extremely expensive uh, like they get like a, a spoon of bottle or something like that for like sixty seventy dollars which is insane and most people like they sell it themselves to people so it's like it's it's like it goes like crazy so these like mdma therapy and all these like sessions it would like get a really good help up there yeah and they're cost effective too like yeah if you only need one or one to three sessions and then some follow-up care okay that's better than ending up in an emergency room 30 times with yeah. alcohol poisoning or yeah. overdosing yeah. that's a bird like that like these sites that we have we're cutting down on costs paramedics that have to show up very rarely to our sites there's been zero deaths in alberta they had four thousand I think overdoses at these sites and zero deaths. And at the one I work at, zero deaths because no one's heart's allowed to stop because we're right there with the intervention. Oh. And then the paramedics, when they show up sometimes because maybe it took a little long for that person to start breathing and maybe they're on another drug we're worried about, the person's stable when they show up. And they're like, wow, okay, well, we'll just throw them on the stretcher and I guess take them in for a follow-up. Thanks, guys. <laughs> they're not showing up to someone turning blue, choking on their tongue in an alleyway. And now that paramedic has to stay with them for 20 minutes breathing on the way to a hospital and then spending time in an emergency room where they're throwing all the shit around and they take up a trauma bed. What if someone comes in choking and now they have all these overdoses taking up beds? But if these sites are around, you never have to go to the hospital. We breathe for you as long as it takes, give you Narcan, and then it's only if we feel necessary to call those paramedics. Mm -hmm. And they've said to us many times, some are great, some are still learning about this, <laughs> but the ones who are great say specifically, we're glad you're doing this. You're preventing us from doing this because <laughs> mm. that's not what ambulances are for. They're not mobile life support machines. They are, but they're not supposed to be that. But we just mm. go around to people who are having a correctable cause. Imagine diabetes was so common that like it was killing everybody every year. Like that was the highest cause of death. Well, you'd have more diabetes clinics, wouldn't you? <laughs> so yeah, I'm glad that mm. these sites are becoming more accepted. Mm. Yeah. And I think these kits are also available at Shoppers, Drug Mart, and yeah, other places. Yeah. They're free, yeah. And yeah. if they question you, like, don't let it get to you. Because I've had times where people have told me the pharmacist was a little bit stigmatizing. 
Like one yeah. woman, she's a foster mother, right? And she said she went in there because she wants to have it. Because what if the one of her kids has friends over and one of them's overdosed yeah. or she's yeah. downtown? And the person looked at her and said, I need a lot of your information, though. I need to know your personal information. I don't think that's the case. You're supposed yeah. to just show your health card. You're a Canadian citizen. You get it for free. Uh, they just have to show that you have an OHIP. That's basically yeah. it. But we give these out. Um, any community health center typically will give these out for free. And the company who's responsible for Narcan and Naloxone, they've made it free. So... Um, that's angering a lot of EpiPen companies and insulin companies because they're they've basically shown that you can make drugs free if there's a crisis. So mm-hmm. if you are a company that makes EpiPen and you actually jack your prices up based on how many people are diagnosed or diabetes, where you're hearing in the states some people have to go to Walmart and get unreliable insulin that they have to ration their eating because they can't afford their insulin. So like if that if they refuse to make those free, Narcan's proven you can make it free if there's a crisis. So there's companies that get mad at Narcan because they're like, how dare you? You're showing people that we can do this. <laughs> so, yeah, they are free. So go in your your local um, pharmacy, whether it's a shopper's or in a grocery store, ask for Narcan, say, I would like to have this to help. And the pharmacist will show you how to give it right there. They'll teach you it. They'll train you. And then they send you on your way. And if you give Narcan and there's no side effects except for a withdrawal. <laughs> so if you gave it to someone and they've just collapsed from a heart attack, well, if it doesn't work, you're going to start CPR anyways. So you're not going to hurt them by giving them Narcan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Parties especially. Find someone passed on the bathroom and you don't think it's alcohol, just give them a shot of Narcan up the nose or in the shoulder. See what happens. <laughs> right? like, but like, right. you really think they're overdosing. Yeah. Dude, just like, like, what are you doing? It's well, like, don't worry about it. Yeah, don't worry about it. <laughs> well, here's the rule, though, to know someone's overdosing is you can't wake them up. You cannot wake them up and they're turning blue or purple and they're not breathing effectively. Oh. So in alcohol poisoning, you know, you would tell they've been drinking that much, you'll smell it on them that they have alcohol poisoning. You sweat it out, right? Every time as a paramedic, I went to someone with alcohol poisoning, shout out to Dalhousie University. <laughs> they're very high customer rate for us downtown Halifax. Um, they smell like alcohol walking in the door and they're covered in sweat. The toxidromes are a little different for alcohol. With opioids, people are just turning blue. They're barely breathing, if at all, and you can't wake them up. Yeah, so if you feel find someone like that, give them Narcan and call the ambulance. If it works, great. If it doesn't, the paramedics will be there. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's take a break, and then we sure. come back to this, yeah. All right, back from the break. Um, Jake, what was your first psychedelic experience? Awesome. I like this. We were kind of talking earlier. Um, so with actual psychedelic experience, um, my first one wasn't actually on a psychedelic, and I'll get to that in a moment, but my first time taking a psychedelic was actually psilocybin. Um, when I'd started to really research and get into addictions and mental health and the near-death experience, and even listening to like the Joe Rogan podcast like early in 2000s, like when it really started to get rolling, yeah, they started bringing up a lot of these psychedelic therapies. And I was just becoming a paramedic and I wanted to like not have a naivety that if I'm dealing with someone in crisis or in psychosis or an altered state, that I'm just going to sit there and look at them. <laughs> so my thought was my roommate at the time was like really into psychedelics and she was an addictions mental health student and was learning more about their effects. And I had this comfort of like, if I'm going to do this, enough people do psychedelics. I've smoked weed before. I've tried that. It's not as bad as the media says. This is back, mind you, in 2010, right? Or 2011. And I just went for a small dose, I thought. I'm like, you know, I'll do a little dose. And because the math wasn't great and you don't always know what you're getting into, I think I took a little more than I thought, <clears throat> than a microdose. And it was fine because I was with my roommates and the experience came on a little bit stronger than I thought. And 
it was actually the one of the more important experiences I had in my life because at the time I was getting into a career that has a lot of threat to life and limb of other people that I'm responsible for. And when people get into these careers, even doctors admit that early in the career, they don't always hold sight of how powerful their role is in someone's life in emergency when you're being called to someone who's dying or sick. So what it did was it kind of stopped me in my tracks and punched me in the chest a couple of times psychologically saying, you get ready. You're not walking into this easy. Like you think, you know, a lot, you know, 18 year olds and 19 year olds mm-hmm. when they're coming out of like getting into college, they, the Dunning-Kruger effect. As yeah. soon as you're into something, you think, you know, it all, what the mushrooms did right then and there. And it wasn't even that much. It was like half a gram. And they made me fall into the fetal position. And I just remember this cycle of just, you need to make sure you're prepared. You can't be naive. You need to ask questions, man. You need to grow. You need to reach out. And it was this cycle. I was crying. I remember like, oh my God, this hurts. I don't want to hear this. But guess what? If my dad was saying that or my teacher, it would be his important fucking message and it would hurt probably the same. But yeah, but you would that it would be different because like when when you when you yourself you're telling that to yourself you're yeah. receiving it really well yeah. as for yeah oh yeah, yeah. thank you that's a point too yeah. is that it was I got to realize part way through that it was me yeah and I remember calling my you're gonna love this my mom woo this is great so <laughs> psychedelics often correlate with a near death experience in the sense of the different changes in blood flow in the brain are very similar. So the feeling of, you know, I'm sure everyone listening who's had a difficult experience can say those, is this going to end feeling? You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. oh my God, is this, is this is me forever now? <laughs> um, well, I called my mom. I remember saying, mom, I just I tried mushrooms and like, I feel stupid. I shouldn't have done this. I think I'm in trouble. And she's like, no, J- Jake, I, you're going to be okay. Like, <laughs> how much did you take? I'm like, I, I, it wasn't that much. Just a couple little pieces of it. And she's like, okay, listen, you're, you're in college. You're experimenting. That's normal. Like I grew up in the sixties. It's like, oh my God, she's right. Okay, he's the right person to call. And she's like, it's okay. How about you call your sister, Alex? She's a little closer in your age. She's experimented with this stuff before. Give her a call. So I'm like, thank you, mom. I love you. She's like, I love you too. So I hang up my phone and I call my sister. And she's like, oh my God, you're on mushrooms? I was like, yes, it sucks. She's like, it's oh, okay. Here, I love you. It's all good. And she just talked to me a bit. And instantly, it broke. Like, it felt like I was on this big tidal wave heading towards land. Like, no, 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 no. Yeah. And then it kind of just eased me down instead of throwing me. And I just felt this wonderful release of, it's okay not to know everything. It's okay not to be perfect. Fuck yeah, it's okay to be this naive. I gotta learn. And then the weirdest thing happened, because I was totally stone cold sober all of a sudden. I went on and started studying physics and dimensional like science and shit. And like weird things I never was into before. And ever since then, I had this like knack for research. It came out of this experience of like, you're never going to know everything. So don't worry about it. Just be enthralled in learning. And my preceptor, my first mentor as a paramedic student, um, said that to me over and over. You never stop fucking learning. The day that you say, oh, I know everything, your patients will start dying. And doctors are like that. Because there's nothing worse than a family doctor that goes, hey, I fucking know you're fine. Just take this pill. There's no other option. You want one to go, you know what? I just read this new article. I'm going to send you to a specialist. And this person will help you. Like, fuck. So... (laughs) I've always been scared to share that story in a professional sense, but in the end, it kind of helped me be the professional I am today where my supervisors and my bosses have said, geez, like we got to wonder what we're getting all this wonderful work out of you. (laughs) And in my head, I'm like, well, I've had some powerful experiences and cannabis then was something that entered my life around then as a sword and shield. I think psychedelics, as I was saying to you earlier, actually, it's um, like you're in a labyrinth and you get that string 
like yeah. the myth of Ariadne that Terence McKenna talked about, that you follow that string out of the labyrinth. But while you're going through, you're going to face monsters still. You're still in the labyrinth. So cannabis for me, and it worked for my body, right? Not everyone's going to have the same experience with cannabis. It was like a sword and shield that as things came at me, I was able to fuck, fight them off, right? Yeah. And then by the time, I'm still nowhere in the labyrinth. I think you don't ever get out of it fully. I think you just get out of certain layers because the ultimate getting out of the labyrinth is death, I think. I think. I don't know. I'm not an expert in yeah. that. Um, Daniel Gregg might have a lot to say on that. <laughs> studies, honest. I would love to have that conversation. Just yeah, literally, if you sit in here and just say... You'll get two hours of content if you just say, Daniel, what's your thoughts on being in a labyrinth and death being <laughs> able to escape? Boom! You wouldn't have just, to say a word. He just, he's gotcha. But anyways, um, so that was my answer for that. And But the first psychedelic experience was before that, where I had my first ER clinical, where they take paramedic students, they shove you in an emergency room, they give you some poor burnt... No, I'm kidding. She wasn't burnt out. But some <laughs> poor nurse who's like... Oh God, I got to take care of this ADHD 19 year old kid caught up on coffee who just wants to do everything. <laughs> and they're great. Like the hospital I worked at was in North Bay and they're wonderful staff. And this is before taking any psychedelic. And I remember um, my first time seeing somebody who was dying and having to help them. And what happens as a paramedic student and nursing students is you get stuck in the emergency room shadowing and it's a great place to be to learn because all these different emergencies come in and they just send you to each one trying to learn the best you can. Sometimes you're just watching because <laughs> like, don't touch anything. Just fucking stand by the wall with your hands in your pocket and watch. <laughs> like, okay. Sometimes though, yeah. and this is scary, it's, emergency rooms are chaotic and they'll look at you and it's like, you're the only one in the room. I need you here for a moment. Hold pressure on this bleed on this person's artery. And you're like, oh, oh shit. <laughs> like, you need to do that as a yeah. student, right? Because yeah. the first time in the ambulance. So they need you to do certain skills and they check them off a list. So breathing for somebody, obviously a nurse needs to watch that you're going to breathe safely for somebody who's not breathing on their own. Um, giving a certain drug, doing certain things and first time doing CPR. So we get a call, boom, um, that they're coming with a hanging and it was down the street. It wasn't far. My friend in my class at the time was doing a ride along and he was on that ambulance. So they're coming in with this hanging victim where they found her and she was not breathing, so they're doing CPR. So if anyone's listening who's not a healthcare professional, um, CPR is when your heart has stopped beating on its own, and now we are doing chest compressions, we're breathing for you with oxygen, trying to give drugs to re-stimulate your heart and bring you back or revive you, so to speak. Um, so I instantly had this feeling in my chest, which felt almost like the beginning of a psychedelic trip, that they said, we need you to get your gown and mask on, Jake, get your gloves on, get ready for this, that I'm standing in the trauma room, and I'm feeling this rise. And I know anyone listening who studies like chakra work and stuff is going to be like, oh, I know what chakra he's in. <laughs> and it came up in, above my belly button and kind of rose into my rib cage a bit. And then all of a sudden the door swung open and I can see through the window and the curtains, the footsteps and the stretcher rolling through. And they come around the corner and my friend's like riding on the stretcher, doing chest compressions. Um, they throw her down on the exam table and they're like, Jake, you have to go in. This is my first time. I put my hands in the chest and I can feel the ribs cracking. I can feel the cartilage. I can feel like the cold of her skin. I can see the color so vividly. I can look at her eyes and the glaze over in her eyes, the direction her pupils were facing, the sounds of the beeping in the room. That I can feel and uh, they smell like the nurse's perfume across from me. Like something so vivid and just continuing up and down, up and down, chest compressions until that doctor kept helping me. And then she said, okay, we're going to stop here. She's no longer helpable. She's been hanging too long. I can tell by the ligature marks, you can stop CPR. And then what happened was this release, kind of similar to coming down from a psychedelic experience. And although the outcome wasn't favorable, 
sometimes you can't save everybody. And like the hanging victim where they didn't know how long she was hanging. She actually turns out was hanging for over an hour before they found her. So unfortunately, you can't bring someone back after that long. So there was this understanding of, wow, life is this kind of a cycle anyways. And this woman's the same age as me. Like I'm 19 and she's 19. And my own friend, one of my best friends had hung himself and died that way before, you know, years before. So it was something that taught me that life was not something you can ever have control over, that you're going to know your map, so to speak. There's always holes that are going to burn in that map and you have to find your way around. So I made peace right then and there, looking over this poor girl who was just pronounced dead, that although I'm into this career to save lives, that's not what it's about. It's about preserving life, limb, function, and quality of life to the best of ability. And most doctors, if they go into their careers with that perspective, their patients do better in life. So... 19 years old, I, that was my psychedelic experience right there. Without any psychedelics. No. <laughs> and the way the nurses de-escalated me after, I felt like it was integration. They sat me down. They said, how do you feel about that? And I thought, wow, it was intense. And I called my best friend. If he's listening, Brian, he's a firefighter. And he's, he's, been, he, he's been doing CPR on people before himself. He knows what it feels like. And I called him and told him about this. And he kind of, it was like a trip sit almost. And that we just discussed it and like I was able to walk away with this perspective that I'm not afraid of seeing people leave this like die or pass on. It's more about I enjoy the intensity of being on that edge. And then times where people have come back to life or now on the job I, go, I, I have, no one actually has died in front of us in our sight because as soon as they stop breathing, we get on that and we bring them back because we no longer have to find them hours later. It's now right in front of us. And if you get a defibrillator on somebody <clears throat> in the first five minutes of their heart stopping, there's an 80% chance of survival. People don't know this. And if you start chest compressions on someone who's just dropped and you just keep that up till the ambulance comes, survival rates go up. People listening, you don't have to take a course. If you just find an AED somewhere in public and slap that on somebody's chest and listen to the 911 directions, they will tell you what to do. And if you can do that in the first couple of minutes, they have a really high survival rate. But people don't know this. So that's why I like teaching first aid because experiences like that told me you just got to know basic shit. Some of the best life saves I've heard about yeah. were people who just start hammering on someone's chest. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. And then before the paramedics walk in, they're breathing and pushing them off. And sometimes an 80 year old woman will find her like will wake up to her 400 pound husband or 300 pound husband taking his last breath beside her. And her adrenaline, when she picks up that phone, they say, you want me to lift him out of bed onto the ground? And they do it. They fucking do it. And there's this beautiful 911 call. I can never find it on YouTube where you hear the recording where she's like, I think she's 80. And this man's like 200 to 300 pounds. And she pulls him out of bed. You hear it on the phone. Him thud to the ground. And they're like, we need you to start chest compressions. They tell her what to do. And you hear her going. And she's yelling, you son of a bitch. You start (laughs) fucking breathing. And she's hammering. And then you hear snorting. And she's like, oh, wait, he's snoring. They're like, keep going. And then the paramedics walk in and he's breathing. Holy and shit. she's like tiny and just her adrenaline I love you and like the, your story you were telling me about your uncle earlier that love when people are doing chest compressions or they're with someone who's going through shock and dying expressing love one of the best research studies was done in California where they showed paramedics loading people in an ambulance um, who are suffering from a major trauma if I say to my partner they're not going to make it they die faster but if I keep up love, this, I'm with you, stay with me, keep breathing. I know it sounds kind of movie cheesy as you're listening, yeah, yeah, yeah. but the one thing I like is if you connect with them any way you can, people hear you still when they're unconscious. It's the last sense to go. So if you're with someone who's dying, whether it's a family member in palliative care who you have to let go of and you're not ready to do that, 
take pride in knowing that all of us in healthcare, we know that if you just held their hand and stay with them and tell them you love them and I'm here for you and we care about you, they will have a peaceful exit. And I've seen that with patients in the ambulance that even people who are bleeding out, if that paramedic is experienced and confident, and I've seen some of my partners who've been in the job for fucking 10, 15 years with like a stabbing victim, but they can calmly talk them through it and keep their blood pressure almost stable just from being calm. So yeah. <laughs> Bit of a flight of thought there, but... <laughs> <laughs> that was... That was a speech. That was a really... That was... It's like something like directly coming out of your heart. Thank you. I'm I'm trying to do that more and psychedelics help with that instead of trying to be egotistical. Psychedelics really like I, if I, if I have to put like, um, someone like, you know, when you say like, there's, there's a point in my life that there's someone saved me. That's psychedelics to me. Nice. Like I was like going through like a shit ton of depression and a lot of stuff was like coming up with my own trauma until like, my first like uh, mm-hmm. mushroom trip it just like it was like basically there was the um, your grandfather that comes to you and it's like hey grow the fuck up it's this mm-hmm. is the time that you need to grow the fuck up and take responsibility and get shit done and deliver stuff and uh yeah and it and i was like what am i doing like why why am i even like what is this depression thing like what what is this like that is like, keeping me on a cycle so this whole thing is still like firing up. I'm asking the questions and like once you start like asking mm-hmm. these questions, you eventually like get the answer step by step one, two, three, four. And before you know it, you're like, okay, I'm out of depression. Like, and I can tell that myself mm-hmm. because I, you start like being more active. It go around, you laugh more, you kind of like not stop being not toxic and toxicity mm-hmm. goes out and like it affects your behavior. Your friends that come like come mm-hmm. closer to you, they're not afraid of you anymore. Like or like there is some weird stuff like happens that like you can feel the change overall that is like happening around you and this change often like we are not aware of them sometimes like we kind of like get into this that's why people say you got to do meditation on self-awareness and like look at your life from a third point person like point of view and just like Mm. look at this whole thing like Mm. it doesn't need to be always taking 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 like consuming mm-hmm. you should start like yeah. generating from inside yeah. and this was yeah, yeah. the biggest message that i've ever got in my entire life from someone who it was also myself and they say in yeah. the in the psychedelic world yeah. they say the mushroom talked to me yeah. yeah yeah and even with my story like i i had like three decades of depression like since like four and five so like i never really felt happy and first march of this year was the first time i was like oh i don't need to be sad anymore and after that like i i notice people's expression i can read face facial expressions really better and i can understand situations in a in a lot more connected way and um, yeah i can see a lot more about people now than before and now is the point where i truly understand happiness of like having people around you and not isolated in a closed environment is not is not a really default state for humans like we thrive within community and all that stuff and this is like just like less than a year that like it just and it keeps on getting more clearer and uh, understanding becomes like more sharper like as as i like continue with the learning that i had in those first psychedelic experiences 
this is beautiful what you're both combining here is what's called like you know the downward spiral mm-hmm. we were talking about upward spirals right like through your hierarchy of needs and both of your stories have that connection of like you had to feel one level met before you could start to move up and that it's not directly linear it's circular mm-hmm. you always like they say even in addiction like relapse is a part of recovery like you, you can't be hard on that person who has that drink they didn't want to have or takes that drug they said they weren't going to do it's like no no that's fine your brain needed that control the first hierarchy and Maslow has like those five, right? And you both kind of mention them each, like whether on purpose or not in those stories that when you cycle through the first one of safety, you need to feel first biological needs are met. That if you're not sleeping properly, you're not eating proper nutrition. I love how you yeah. brought nutrition yeah. earlier. Nutrition is important. S- physical safety, that your body and mind is, in, is fine and that you're not under threat. Then after that, it comes to this kind of more sense of safety and comfort of like, are you in shelter? Is someone trying to hurt you, right? Does your community accept you? Then you move up to the next one, which is connection. So that social connection that once you feel that your biological needs are met, your body and mind are functioning properly, then you feel safe, then you don't have to worry about those needs and you can connect with others. And then when you're connecting with others, you feel better. The next one's self-esteem. Then your self-esteem goes up. And then after that, you can self-actualize, which is that final point where you're no longer concerned about your journey. You're starting to now help others with theirs. And this is a hierarchy you sort of spiral upwards with. You're not supposed to go straight up. Because if you go straight up, something's probably missing and you're probably going to fall back down soon. Because what you're talking about (laughs) is the spiraling where you're going to catch yourself on all your faults. You need to be honest. Like... The problem that I had in my early 20s, it's pro- I'm not going to say it was age only, I think we all have our flaws, yeah. was that naivety and lack of self-awareness. When I was not meditating, you know, you're just partying with your friends when you're not working and all this shit, you build up this sense of self that's not real and you build up this naivety and this like, I think I know too much and you fuck up and you make mistakes and then you wonder how, I was just following the code. <laughs> well, the upward spiral, it identifies that I don't know everything, holy shit. Like, and mm. I would be just as happy if this conversation went with you guys criticizing everything I said, because maybe it would mean I got some fucking learning to do still in that area. Good. Yeah. And I still have times when I teach first aid and mental health first aid where someone will say something about drug, drug use or something where it stumps me. I'm like, you know what? It's a good fucking point. Mm-hmm. We don't know that yet. Good point. Yeah. Like, let's not brush that under the rug and try to validate that with my ego. It's like, you're right. I don't know that. And that's something I probably should know. So we need to start doing that together. Yeah, it does. It does work definitely. Like it's the same thing when like um, art teacher trying to teach like the student how to draw. Mm-hmm. So they kind of like they let them like do do the flaw and drawing and everything. They they make mistakes and and it just comes beside and it's like, hey, look at this. You need to do this. But the student as in those terms in that like art fundamental level, they usually they're like, I'm keep fucking up, I'm fucking up, I'm fucking up, I'm fucking up until they stop telling that to themselves. Like they feel comfortable with the pen paper, they relax and like they start like learning and they'll be like open to the te- whatever the teacher is telling them. Yeah. They say that with your mentors like that, they're supposed to not call them mistakes. It's learning opportunities. Yeah. You're programming yeah. these kids' brains, even yeah, adults. Yeah. Like, yeah. when you're, if you just learned a new trade tomorrow, like, yeah. let's say you're going to be a real estate agent. And by the way, my dad had to do that at the age of like 64 because oh. his career path changed when like the main clients he was working for shut the doors in Canada. And he had to oh. do this thing of what we're talking about. It's like, I got to learn this new shit out of nowhere. Yeah. So you have to kind of find that like way of tailoring it in. And if you can have a mentor, that finds your meaning and tells you you're learning, not you're fucking up. That's a big thing. People eat their young. You ever hear that saying? 
in like healthcare and in, in mental health care and in education, sometimes that happens a lot with mentors where they don't give the break to the one learning. And in art, because mm-hmm. art's supposed to be pretty objective, right? Objective. Yeah. yeah. And but, like, sorry, go ahead. So objective. the more the more like somebody like relaxes their their thoughts, their body, then everything, then they kind like kind of get grounded with like themselves and like and start like loving everything around them they start like improve their drawings get improved you see that in like people's learning and the students as they're like drawing like the most the the ones that they 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 stop like you see it's not like um it's not a disadvantage or something it's like something that like you as a teacher or like as i was a ta basically and like during that like a year and a half ta i was it was i could see that okay this person is really tense with her life or it could be anything but in, she needs that tensity to go away. So like then each person, they have like some of them, they need a space and you slowly like approach and some of them, they need like direct instruction. You tell them, okay, so see you fucked up this line here and it's because of this, this, this. If you do this, it'll be better. Mm-hmm. And that person is like completely receptive of that and it's like, oh, thank you. Right to the point. That's great. But some other people, if you tell that to them, they're like, oh, hey, like I don't like this guy. They you fall know? apart. Yeah, they fall <laughs> apart. So that person is just like, Oh, this looks great. But like, yeah, it's called neurodiversity, right? Yeah. And and with people who struggle with depression, maybe that's another one. Self-criticism is a symptom of depression. So if you are a mentor with someone who you know has depression, you have to almost take that um, other approach of not being so like direct and like like punitive about it, but more like, hey, you know what you may have missed? Like that one you said where it's like, here's what you may have done better next time. And it's not that oh we gotta coddle people that's the first thing I hear yeah. I teach mental health yeah. first aid to companies <laughs> yeah. they'll be like some older like the baby boomer guys right you're like what you want me to tell someone everything's gonna be okay it's like no no it's it's that you have to know our brains are different yeah. it's just like it's just like a, that baby boomer having the heart attack doesn't want the paramedic coming oh you're gonna be okay oh you want me yeah, to lift you on the stretcher they're gonna be like fuck you and the heart attack's gonna be worse so yeah. we're all different so like with the teachers, right? Being a TA, you get to learn right away. How many people would be in a class commonly? Yeah, yeah, like 20 or something. Oh, 20 like, people yeah. with different learning styles probably. Yeah, like, yeah. There's the eight intelligences you hear about now, yeah. right? I think it's, is it Geiger's eight intelligence? I forget what's, um, who came up with it. Um, but they say there's eight different ones. Mm-hmm. You might be great at mathematical, logical. You might be great interpersonal. All yeah. those different ones. Some people are great at a lot of them. But if you have a, a student that you don't know their intelligence and how they learn well, you're not going to get the most out of them. And I had two really powerful mentors when I was a paramedic student. Both were great in their own ways. But the first one was a lot more nurturing to who I was because she was a younger female. Mm-hmm. And when I had the older, like strict male, like father-like type of mentor, yeah. it wasn't the one that suited me the most to thrive. And I'd be tense all the time. So I'd make more mistakes. And he'd be like, why are you fucking up? Like, your marks are perfect. Like, what the hell, man? And when we talk yeah. about it after, you know your shit. Well, because I didn't feel as safe to thrive and kind of take that charge in front of him versus the other one. I had this like, oh, I'm going to be fine if I make a mistake. They're going to catch it. They're going to support me and teach me. But it was when we pulled each other aside, the other mentor, and he said to me, I see that there's something you're struggling with. And he called my depression out before I knew I had it. And he said, I want to know how to help you out. I want to know how to, because you're, you're going to be great at this, but like, I want to know what's holding you back. So we talked about it. He went home, he thought about it, and then we made a plan and it worked. 
and I got better. I passed, and here I am today with it. And and he's one of the better paramedics in Toronto EMS. I won't say his name for his own personal privacy, but he did a great job with me. And uh, if it looked like I was struggling, I was, but it's because I had my own depression to deal with. It wasn't his fault. Yeah. He knew what I needed, and he was a great mentor for it. There are certain people in life, they come and go and in, in your life. They just come in a period of time and you get really connected with them and they teach you something and they will they leave. And like you like your connection doesn't really like get faded. They're just super busy with other like their life and everything. But they like they go and like and always like heroic. Like it is in your head, it just stays, Oh, this person came to my life helped me to pick up my job like he taught me a lot of things where exactly at that time I needed to keep that job and this person just like left and like went on with his life and and you know like you message them in the future and they're like yeah I'm doing great but like they're basically it feels like they're on a mission of like helping this person and the next person and as many as they can just because they've been there somebody helped them and they feel like I really need to take action on this and like pass this knowledge along and they go on a mission to do that. And that's just it, in my life. There were like maybe like four, like I want to say, like, yeah, it just, and these people literally changed like everything, my perception and that and the moment that I really needed and I was struggling with like family problems, a lot of stuff was going on. These person just like really like pull me up. and was like, Hey, listen, I think you should do this. You should, Maybe like you should talk to this person. Maybe you should like go see a lawyer or something, right? Like and and they kind of like get you through that trauma as like you you go along and you grow up from there. And it's they they just become the hero of your life. So we all yeah. have that. Yeah. yeah, I've had like around ten. Ten. Yeah. <laughs> I think the more the merrier. The more the merrier. Yeah. yeah. And then you'll become one like for someone else. What's yeah. that hero arc story, right? It's yeah. that there's points where you're supposed to meet mentors. Like, you know, the hero's yeah. journey? Hero's journey, you know, yeah. um, What's the name of that author of that book again? Oh, I keep on forgetting. I hear a thousand times Mag- a day. Magician lover. Oh, Joseph Campbell? That was it. Yeah, yeah Joseph, Joseph Campbell. Campbell. And it was the hero's journey. And like, they talk about the stage where you're supposed to meet mentors. In every heroic movie, right? Star Wars, yeah. Lord of the Rings. Yeah. There's several mentors and in, in, like guides almost. Yeah it shows you can't do it alone and like that's the worst part of our society is we teach each other it's your fault you gotta figure your shit out alone but we forget the social connection in some parts of that hierarchy I've seen self-esteem come before social connection and that's okay because if you're wired to want to feel good about yourself before you put yourself around people mm-hmm. I think mindfulness and meditation teaches people with depression and anxiety that sometimes your symptoms are affecting other people like PTSD is classic for that where you're in such a painful state of insecurity and fear that you're not consciously aware of, that sometimes you'll lash out at people, you'll avoid things. And being mindful of that can help you move through your hierarchy better. Like you bring up meditation. Mm. That's the biggest one, to be self-aware and have friends that you can confidently have call you out in a safe way. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like I yeah. feel like my roommate right now, if he's listening, his name's yeah. Archie, he's an engineer. So like it's cool to have people with different kind of backgrounds too. Yeah. We safely can have a conversation. He can say something like, you know what, Jake, I think it's kind of fucked up that you say that or feel that way. Um, why do you feel that way? And we can explain it to each other. Yeah. But because we're good friends, there's not an attack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's No, he really just kind of wants to understand. And then at the end of it, we're like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Because yeah. we care to understand. Yeah. yeah. You guys understand each other, I feel like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we do. Yeah, it's, uh, it's hard to often. find that person in your life yeah. to just like understand you. 
and uh, yeah and then still like you know the friendship goes that where like it doesn't get weird at some point right like yeah. it's just like yeah. people like get like weird points and i had those moments with like a couple of my friends and back then we had to but it's um it's a it's like a bliss when you find like a true friend that like okay if i fuck up i can like if i need a sanity check or something or like i'm going on a date with a girl or whatever and like i need to like need need to know his opinion or something and then it's like hey man what do you think like i did this i said this i said that i feel like a little stress can you help me out like can you like walk me through this like what what should i say and like he kind of like goes that buddy of like hey you're gonna be okay you know like that kind of deal it's like it's just perfect to have that person in your life sometimes and you go with them with like no expectation and at the same time you go with like hey like i need help and you reach out to people that um you need to get help from sometimes like i feel people like get a stingy and they're like i don't need anybody help anybody's help i can do things by myself like yeah like and this is not like really by age i've seen like people like over yeah. 40 years old or something they yeah. do that it's a, it's something that like people are sometimes like in different condition of life sometimes mm-hmm. really things are really hard for them so they need to like reach out to their friends and, and sometimes like, even like yeah. vocalizing that problem makes a lot of sense to the person who's speaking it so you don't even need to answer anything just listen mm-hmm. and when they vocalize the issue they're like oh i really didn't check this thing out or maybe i was thinking in a wrong way because when i say it out it just comes out a little harshly that's motivational interviewing so yeah. one of the things they teach you in social service work predictions mental health work is something called the the pace model where you're building partnership and that's building partnerships one of the harder things to do with someone like you have to really break that barrier of safety and like trust and comfort but see keeping autonomy so pace is p a c e right so partnership autonomy so that person's journey is their journey So like you said you're listening a lot because you don't want to start giving advice when you don't know what holes are in their life or what supports or weaknesses like some of the worst shit I've heard people say to people is they'll turn to someone they don't know very well and be like jeez you just need fucking medication <laughs> like nah careful that's not a decision you just make out of anger <laughs> or yeah. like what worked for me no 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 you got to do what, find what works for them so listening you build that autonomy that their journey is their journey you don't know anybody like even your own family you'll never know every part like yeah. dark secret or anything like that um the next part of pace is called compassion the c and compassion is that i see you as a human being so like a true friendship is that you accept each other's growth with compassion that if he makes a mistake or you make a mistake you go well humans make mistakes and i still love you my parents mm-hmm. and i had a wonderful conversation the other night about mm-hmm. like struggles and growth and like they said no matter what you kids go through we will find a way to understand and love you through that and that's why parents have what's called unconditional love. And if you can find friends that have unconditional love for you, that will go you're a human on a journey and I don't we can't know everything about the human brain. Like Daniel Greg will tell you a lot about the brain, but he'll still end off with we don't know everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like geez. So part and then the e at the end is evocation. You're going to evoke because you listened, you saw them as a human, you let them explain it and maybe mirrored some things, like reflected some of what they're saying. you will evoke their answer in themselves where they will say to you i think i'm going to do this and you're going to go huh i could have told you that a week ago but oh great yeah you said that <laughs> see oh, cuz yeah. if you tell people just go to the gym dude it's like okay that doesn't work but maybe like you say things like point out discrepancies like yeah, yeah you said you want to you know, lose weight but man you you eat a lot of you know chocolate at night and like you're not you don't ever try to burn that off like did you ever 
you know, think about maybe cutting down the chocolate and maybe, because they said to you, like, I need to lose weight. You never go approach someone with a problem, right? Yeah. The rule we say to people is if something's affecting them physically, mentally, socially, or legally, where it can actually harm them, that's when you intervene with people. Mm-hmm. So if you're doing cocaine, for example, technically it's illegal. But if you're showing no reason that I think you're at absolute risk of overdose or crime or harm, well, I'm not going to intervene. Like an alcoholic, right? Someone my like I've had family members who have been struggling with alcohol. And but they're not they still go to work. They're still functional. They're still lovely people. They're not having health problems yet. But they start to increase drinking because of stress maybe at one point. And then I start to see, oh wait, they're really not themselves lately. And now they're starting to fail socially and they're going to start to have problems with that. Or maybe they're missing work now. Uh-oh. Or they're spending a lot of money on alcohol. Well, now I might have a conversation. And mm-hmm. that's one where if you have good partnership, they will listen. But if you've not shown that safety and comfort and compassion, they're not going to listen to shit. And they might not even tell you the truth. Suicide interventions like that. That you can have a complete stranger that can absolutely save someone's life. And in Brampton that happened. Like and. In, in Peel Region, I, it was, I think it was Brampton or Mississauga on the goal line. A guy was going to jump off the bridge. And a stranger, I think it was a young kid too. He was like in his early 20s or something in college, saw this man at the edge of the bridge. And he just, he didn't know what to do. He never been trained. But something inside of him just said, fuck it. And he walked up. And he didn't walk anywhere unsafe. He didn't climb the rail or anything. He stood on the other side of the rail. And he just said, why are you here? And he just, he just said, why are you here? And the guy didn't want to talk at first. He said, fuck off. And he saw a shoe, a little tiny shoe in his hand it's like a kid's shoe he's like is that your kid's shoe so because he built this okay i know you told me to fuck off but i'm gonna look for something else here i see your kid's shoe holy shit you have a child wow man i see that you're a human you're you're a father and that guy as soon as he said the shoe he looked at him and started talking about his life and all the things that led him to this bridge and then by the end of it 911 was called he was able to climb back over and the guy didn't jump and he said it was because of that kid stopping and building that connection and that's why suicide intervention began because of moments like that where people just fucking stopped and built human connection. Like psychosis, you see someone on the street and they're begging for money and maybe they're in a ramble or you don't want to look at them and give them money. You know what? Just look at them and say, I'm sorry, I don't have anything. But give them that eye contact or don't say anything. Give them eye contact, a smile and a nod. People need that sometimes. So if someone you know is expressing these thoughts of hopelessness at all or like absolute pain and suffering, simply ask them, are you suicidal? Are you going to hurt yourself? Are you going to kill yourself? Because that actually builds connection. It shows human beings, it's normal to have suicidal thoughts under stress. And I see that in you. So tell me the truth. And people will tell you the truth if you're direct. The myth about suicide is if I ask, are you suicidal? It's going to plant a seed. They're going to do it. No. They want you to ask. That's why people say hopeless things. That's why they say these things out loud. There are these red flags. So if you catch that, ask. And then if they say yes, listen to them. They might not actually want to die. Most people who are suicidal or using drugs are under a lot of pain that they're not able to get to the bottom of. And you can't just turn off pain when the pain's coming from inside your nervous system. Like emotional pain is way harder to deal with than physical pain. Mm. That's why people do self-harm. Like they'd rather cut into their flesh because that pain response, it actually diverts to how bad the emotional pain is. Yeah. Yeah. So building connection, I think, is a great thing there. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was super, yeah. Well, um, I do a lot of suicide intervention training now. And like, this is amazing yeah. because yeah. We, um, we, have, we had like this um, thing about suicide. Like we had like a therapist here and who he worked at um, two years of like suicide prevention. And he was just saying like a lot of these like it could be prevented. 
a lot of them yeah. it's like if people like actually like get get on their toes and just like be like hey okay i need to i need to like pick up my friend like take responsibility for my friend this is my buddy we used to drink together whatever on a friday night like you need to like what is he doing and just like go and like help your buddy yeah. you don't have to win either you don't have to solve the problem just like, be there for them yeah crisis teams if people just know to call crisis lines like if you're like i don't know what to say man i'm afraid you're gonna call they're not going to put them in jail. Crisis teams very seldomly criminalize somebody. They're often going to try to help de-escalate them. And most people who are suicidal are not ready to die. I think that's a good thing to mention. Hmm. That if you listen, most of the time people will say to you, I don't think I'm going to kill myself this week even. Sometimes it's just like they're having the ideations. And you want to be able to really hear someone's story out. Because when they think they're being heard and they know it in your eyes that you're hearing them, that's when you can start asking for, hey, do you have a plan? Are you going to do this now? Because plan, means, and intention are the three things that you look for in someone who's really high risk and previous behavior, of course. Mm-hmm. And if they express that, you know what, I here's my plan, here's how I'm going to do it, I have access to it, I'm going to do it now, I can't stop it. That's the time to call 911 or a crisis team. But times where they say something like, you know what, maybe for example, they have pills. Um, and there's this one woman I was trying to help a lot and I, I feel really, I'm, I'm happy she's in a better place now. But at the time it was a shock to my system. Um, she was trying her best to take care of her kids and there was this issue with the father and not helping. And when you're stuck as a single mother in today's society, especially in a GTA, paying for rent and all that, I'm, good luck, right? So she started to have these really bad ideations and she had pills that she'd keep in the cupboard. And she reached out and said that she was having these thoughts, but she didn't want to die. And most people... Right when they let go of things, like the Golden Gate Bridge, they say the people who survived, who let go of that bridge, as soon as they let go, they didn't want to do it. And it's because when the body realizes that that death is finite and actual, like, sorry, not finite, death is actual, like, the end there, that's when the brain starts to try and save you again. So if we can intervene right when that person's wanting to let go, well, with this woman, she wasn't ready yet. She just had the pills. So when I found out she didn't want to take them, she said, I don't want to take these pills. One rule that people don't know in suicide intervention, you need to let them keep control. The rule isn't, I'm running over and taking those pills away now. No. The scary part is sometimes you have to do things like help them build a plan. Is there somebody that you can give those pills to? Is there a way you can get those pills somewhere that's not in your reach, that in an impulsive decision of absolute crisis, you can't just grab them and do it? And her solution was she's going to lock them in a closet and give the key to her mom. Okay. You call your mom and tell your mom you need the key to the pills that are going to kill you. Is your mom going to give it to you? No. So that's a good case scenario that we were able to build a safety plan that worked and they felt in control enough to now stay stable. But if you can't do that, you're not confident enough, a crisis team can do that. That's what crisis team's bread and butter is, is they want to make sure, are you at risk of dying tonight? And if so, how do we prevent that? And if not, how do we lead you away with a care plan that saves you? So that's, you should take a two-day course. They do suicide intervention training all the time in GTA. Oh, um, yeah. There's a place called Living Works that does it all the time. Um, you can search it up on literally Google. Type in suicide intervention training. It's the ASSIST program, A-S-I-S-T. And if you can get that training, it's a two-day course. You're certified and it is amazing. It leads you through the steps to understand suicide and then actually help somebody. And anyone who is alive today knows that's the leading cause of death in North America. Tied with overdose, so you might as well know what to do. <laughs> or at least to feel more comfortable, that's all. You can never know exactly what to do. I think that's important to say. It's yeah. okay not to know. Um, what are the uh, calls on LSD? How does those, like, have you... Ooh. Yeah, have you... What are the cases, like, in which, which usually, which places it happens most? And uh, 
Have you ever like got any call on LSD that like you have to go to people's houses when there's like no party or like it's a personal? Yeah, this is space. weird. Yeah. I've never been to a party with an LSD call. The ones that I like stand out in my head are like someone walking down the side of a road, acting strange, and it gets called in by somebody driving by, and the cops start to drive up to them to make sure they're not like on a weapon or anything. And typically, the person just is walking back from a party, <laughs> or they're <laughs> like you know just going on a little walk around the neighborhood, and they took a little LSD, you know, and having them just their own experience, and someone doesn't like the way that they're dancing or something, or that they're maybe singing loudly to themselves, mm -hmm. and it looks out of place. Um, I've never, I've only seen it like a couple times where the person was like in traffic or something where it was dangerous, but that just speaks to set and setting, like mm -hmm. understanding how to like teach people harm reduction. But with LSD, it's if it's laced, a lot of the times is where we see people have like bad, like blood pressure changes, possible seizures if it's the end bomb. But, um, most of the time it's most people in distress and we should have like a call line, a crisis line for bad trips. I think that'd be an amazing thing. And maybe someone can start voluntarily doing that. And I don't think the government can actually shut that down. I don't think there's a way you can do that. If you can actually open up this line and volunteers can do this. And it's like someone can call and go, huh, I uh, took LSD and um, whew, I don't feel good. I don't feel good. Um, I'm remembering what it was like to be three and I wasn't happy when I was three. Okay. Hey, thanks for calling. Um, <laughs> what's your name? Yeah. Oh, okay. And then they can kind of triage that and sometimes yeah. if they're saying something like i'm having chest pain i can't breathe you know what how about you call an ambulance then like because they can get that right or oh i see what's going on here breathe with me hey there's a website you can go on right now and watch these fun videos and maybe it could link up to like a tripsit website that has like resources like these are things people don't do enough of because when you call an ambulance there's nothing wrong with it god damn we actually laugh at those calls paramedics we don't get mad they become 26 year old or 20 year old on LSD on um, freaking out at party. We're like, yeah, can I do this one? Okay, I'll do this one. You know, like, you're trying to fight over it. Um, so when we get there, a lot of the time, if you hold space well, you play with them, you joke around with them. People are usually just making fun of us and stuff, and we just have fun with it. It goes really well. But when people have it laced with things that have stimulant effects, the worst thing we see is something called excited delirium. You see it with PCP a lot. You see it with um, when things are laced with these other like Wellbutrins, like an antidepressant that people can snort and it causes this effect. So if you flood the body with serotonin or stimulants, it throws the nervous system into a hyper arousal state where people over ramp it's called. And we see this a lot at our supervised injection site where they're on, if they inject meth and it's like badly cut, they go into an over ramping where their whole body, they basically can't stop and stand still. They, they, they basically march around the room, they're flailing their limbs, they have this like aggressive look to them, but they're not actually completely out of insight. It's so strange. Consciously, they're usually a bit aware. So what'll happen is if someone's in an excited delirium or in one of these states, we'll usually get to police officers holding them down or something or have them in cuffs. And we're just like, and the person's saying, I don't want to hurt anybody, but they're actively trying to hurt everybody. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's because like, this is a very under-researched state, by the way. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of literature that says excited delirium doesn't exist, which is strange, because if you've <laughs> ever seen it, <laughs> holy fuck, it exists. And the superhuman strength. Like, I remember being a, a, like a 200-pound paramedic student when I was at the height of, like, deadlifting and shit like that, where a guy was lifting me alone with his leg. I had all four limbs on his leg, because the cops needed us to sit on his legs. He was trying to fight them off. And he was lifting me, 200 pounds of me, with his fucking leg. 
Yeah, he's a very muscular guy. I heard a story on that too that there was this yeah. woman like she lifted like five like, cups, five cups like trying to hold her and like yeah. they couldn't, and then just she's just like yeah. leave yeah. me alone, like yeah. 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 The magical yeah. number yeah. five yeah. cups. My funniest call. I'm, if my partner who I had this night, her name's Boyana. We got hired together. She's <laughs> great, by the way. Great paramedic. She's so patient. She can walk into anything and it'll look like she's just reading a book. Does that make sense? Like you have someone bleeding or a baby being delivered in front of her, anything, and she'll just kind of be like, "Okay, next chapter, nice. Okay, let's move forward." So, anyways, we're going into this call where these are the details, and these are our favorite ones as paramedics. It comes in as this: it says, "Man in boxer shorts, sweating. It's minus ten degrees, by the way. Sweating in boxer shorts, punching cars that are driving by at sixty kilometers an hour." <laughs> and her and I look at each other. We're a year on the road, and we're like, "Here we go." <laughs> So we're on our way to this. We pull up to this house. The lights are all off, but there's six <laughs> cop cars in the driveway. Like, six cop cars? Oh, shit. <laughs> so we get out, and like there's no updates from the cops, because usually the police are updating paramedics the constantly, like if it's dangerous or not, and there's no updates. I'm like, well, I mean, it must be fine. Let's walk in. It's quiet. So we go into the front door. It's open. So we open it. And as soon as we step in that front hallway, we hear all this fuffling, like fuffle in the background. And we go up to the back bedroom door, and this bang happens against the door. And this shuffling, and this cop leans out the door and goes, you guys need to back the fuck up. I'm like, oh, okay. So we back into the hallway. He then opens the door again and says, it's okay, come in. They have this guy held down, five cops. So it's just oh, like you said this door. And he looks like, have you ever seen 28 Weeks Later? That zombie movie? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like that. Ah, ah, and yeah. like red. And the thing is, oh. in this state, it's from drugs being cut with lots of stimulants and, and like sometimes serotonin-like stimulating drugs, not psychedelics. It's never going to be... Like LSD, you won't see this unless it's cut with something horrible. So he had been snorting cocaine and Wellbutrin, a powerful antidepressant, and potentially doing PCP. Uh, that's a combination for apparently Superman. I don't fucking know. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, that might be Superman's power. He just takes PCP and he can leap over tall buildings. No, I'm just kidding. No one do that, please. Kids, don't do that. Don't do that. I'm just kidding, guys. Please this is don't. a joke. But anyway, so he's and, yeah. and dangerous. You can die in these states, by the way. Like, these are these in real life, this is why paramedics need to be there. That although the cops need to hold him down, his heart rate and blood pressure is still shooting through the roof. Yeah. And he can have a seizure and he can stop breathing. And sometimes when cops have to hold them down, they put pressure on their lungs yeah, and yeah, they yeah. actually can stop yeah. their breathing. So with this, he's like throwing them off almost. We have to run out of the room and call backups. So they come to sedate this guy. By this point, we can barely even get any vitals on him. We can't touch him. He keeps throwing the cops off. My partners show up and he was my mentor. So like when paramedics hear other paramedics in distress... They drive a little faster. <laughs> he heard me on the radio because I had to hold the Boyan and I are holding the door closed basically while five cops are trying to pull him back from the Holy door. Shit. And like we hear this and we're like, backup, we need backup quick. And then he comes on the radio and his first name I'll say only is John. He goes, Jake, we're coming. And they're across the city. You ever seen Pulp Fiction? Yeah. You know, like when the wolf gets called yeah, and he has that moment where he's like, that's 30 minutes away. I'll be there in 10. <laughs> so they get there so quick. He walks in. He's like, they're in the room. They walk in there and he worked at the jail and he recognized the guy from the jail. Yeah. Regular client. So there was a relationship and he's like, Hey, I know you. And he's like, I know you too. And he's like, dude, stop fucking being a dick. We know each other. We have respect together. He's like, I'm sorry. I can't stop. So he's like, I'm sorry, buddy. We got to sedate you. And he drives the needle into his thigh. Oh, he has to with Versed. And then all of a sudden he goes, Oh, calms down. Uh, and unfortunately, usually in these States, this guy was lucky. We had only a mild dose, but sometimes doctors have to give a lot of what's called Haldol. And that used to be the drug that hurt them. But now we have ketamine. 
Oh, so ketamine yeah. now is something used in emergency rooms yeah. to sedate violent patients, and paramedics are starting to get trials of it. So that's safer. It dissociates the client, so they're no longer having blood pressure issues. We don't have to intubate them because they stop breathing. It's just this dissociative effect. And I think we should start having a counselor come in, like a crisis worker, while they're in the K-hole, and kind of just start talking to them. Like, hey, I'm really sorry this is happening to you right now, but we have to do this for your safety. I know it's terrible. It's very inhumane. I know it is. It's terrifying. But you just punched out a nurse. <laughs> okay, I'm a crisis worker. We're going to talk you through this. No, I know. You can't move your limbs. I know. Don't try to talk. You can't. Your, your lungs are... Yep, they're good. But don't worry. <laughs> when you come out of this, no police are charging you because you didn't hit anybody. And we're going to give you a counselor. <laughs> so what is the stuff that you're from is starting a company like this? Oh, God. Private company. <laughs> um, resources. Like, like, you know, well, and time, you, know, you can, like, make a Kickstarter or something and, like, ask yeah. for, like... I have a lot on the go, I think, right, right now. And I think yeah. as I'm honing in on what I need to do, conversations like this one, meeting new people, I'm starting to find more of that exact... Like, maybe that. Like mm, maybe yeah. it is starting a company. Maybe it's, you know, helping others so people start a company. Someone should do this. <laughs> well, yeah. if anyone's yeah. listening, my Instagram is jake underscore flight of thoughts. You can reach out there and definitely ask, like, mention things like this. You have ideas. I'm always open to it. Um, yeah, and my website is uh, flightofthoughts.blog. It's on WordPress, actually. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's flightofthoughts.blog. So, that's also a way to reach out to me. And I have a lot of research and upcoming things I do on there, too. Oh yeah, because I yeah. want to keep these things going, and like yeah. more people who are passionate should have platforms. Yeah, yeah. And so thank you guys for being a dude. Platform. This is amazing. It's a, it's yeah. been a, a really crazy rocket ship for me that I've been yeah. like studying about your life and everything. And I was like, this this guy knows what he's talking about. I send him like send the links to a lot of my friends, and a lot of them were like, yeah, this is this is a good one. So yeah. your podcast is the shit. I love yeah. it. A lot I of love people it. love it. You're doing great work. Yeah. And thank you so much for doing right. all these. It's, well, it's just yeah. amazing thank it's you it's a great thanks. journey and thanks for being a part of it with me and yeah. I hope to keep learning yeah man thanks <laughs> cheers cheers